So the first thing this morning I want to do, just so you know where we're headed with this, and hopefully we can uh, work together to gain as much as possible in our short period of time together. I want to set the stage for why we believe this topic is important. And uh, we've got the next two seminar periods to kind of drill down into investigating how we can better do industry in our institutions. And uh, so we'll use that time. Secondly, in just a moment, I will give an introduction to our panel members that we have invited to come help us with this. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to set the stage by saying industry is a part of God's plan of education. And I want to prove that to you this morning before we start by reading one verse of scripture. I only need really one verse of scripture to substantiate this. Now we should never make a doctrine out of one verse of scripture, right? Correct. But this verse of scripture sets the stage for education. And it sets the stage for education in such a way that it talks about industry. Now you might not have known that this verse is in the Bible, but it is. And so it's found in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, and verse, uh, let's see, Genesis chapter 2, and verse 15, and this is what it says. In fact, the entire plan of education is in this verse, so you don't need to be ever confused. Somebody asks you, what, what, what does the Bible say about education? Say, go read Genesis 2.15. That's what it says about education in the beginning. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So, school happened. God was the teacher. Adam and Eve were the students. So he had the word of God. He put them in nature. And he gave them useful work to do. So, the concept of industry comes to us as a God-ordained institution from day, hmm, well, seven maybe, six. Uh, he created the garden. You know, he was in the process of creating the garden from day one. So you could say he was creating the industry. Now, we have a school from Romania here this morning, and they created their industry before they started their school. And that's the biblical model. God created the garden before he brought in the students. Okay? Uh, so if you're thinking about which the Baker family, don't want to call them out, but they're thinking about starting a school. Right? And we were just talking together last night. He's looking at me with his eyes wide open like, did this guy just say that? <laughs> Well, we were talking about industry as a foundation for that, okay? So God ordained this from the very beginning, to have useful work and industry associated with education. So this is not a foreign concept. Don't think you're off on another planet somewhere. You are right on target with God's plan for education. Isay, where does Isay fit in this? Why are we even doing this? Because we believe in the model of education that has been given to us in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and ha as, as fulfilled or as best modeled for us through the Madison School. 
Madison Booth right over here. You can research that to your heart's content. There's a lot of stuff out there. At one point in time, Madison had 25, 26 industries in operational, functional, making money for the school, helping the school, giving places for the young people to be trained, and providing services to the school and the community and functional industries. Yes, we do. I say on our campus that we've got three, but it's really only one, honestly. We have a nursing home, we have a farm, we have a bakery, we have a radio station, so it could be four, but really there's only one industry that provides most of our substantial income for the school, and that's the nursing. Okay, so just that's the stage. That's why we do this. That's why Issei is here. Issei was developed by the supporting ministry schools to help preserve the Madison model of education and carry that to the world. And so we're here this morning. Our topic is industry and schools. How do we do that? How do we market that? How do we talk about that? We've got the uh, director of education from the Inter-European Division. Is that, did I get it right? Here with us this morning, we've got schools from Romania here. We've got people that are just thinking about starting something. We've got institutions that are more mature. Fletcher, how long? So something educational over a hundred years. Wow. You know, so there's, there's that right on down to the, the world we live in today where people are saying, I want to start something. I just returned from, um, yeah, Brazil where we did the OCI conference and people, uh, Charles Sarr was there presenting the history of the supporting ministry work and people were coming up and they were saying, we want to start something. I say, well, praise God, you know. They said, we need some help. We said, well, praise God. You say it's spread kind of thin right now, but we will help you in any way that we can. And so this morning's topic, industry in the setting of education. We have three uh, panel members that have been invited to help us. Denzel McNeilis, right here. Denzel, would you just share with the group, what is your connection to... Um, this organization. Where, where, how did you, I mean, you know. Oh, that's, that's, that's a question. I, uh, I went to Moon Creek Academy. Oh, so we have a graduate of one of our supporting ministry schools right here. What, how, what impact did that experience have on you and your life? Oh, huge. <laughs> it's amazing. It, the experience that I received at Little Creek, I literally think about that. And I know you went to Little Creek as well. Oh, oh. oh yeah, we're recording, so I'm sorry. Okay, try to keep the, your microphone. The experience that I received at Little Creek, I use that continuously. There's always uh, things that have gone on in my life and my business practices that I learned that I got basics from Little Creek Academy. And so, uh, how do you put a value to that? Plus, I met my wife there. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I don't know what, uh, I don't know how you could uh, even put a value on it, uh, on, the, on that <laughs> wonderful experience that I had at Little Creek. I'm in banking. I'm in banking, actually. So I, I, I'm the, a banker looks at the, tries to find the dark cloud in the blue sky. We're always looking at what, how, 
what, where we can get in trouble. And uh, it's what to me, uh, you look at why businesses fail, and I spend a lot of time on that, and then make sure I'm quiet when I'm looking at new loans and new opportunities. And, and so that's what we spend our time on, loans. That's how we make our living. We, we want to do loans, and that's where we get our income. So just a little more background. Um, and so you were involved in a, a little different kind of industry before you got into the banking industry. What what kind of industry? Just tell a little bit about that. Our family uh, built uh, concrete mixers and garbage trucks, and uh, we uh, we were blessed. We started uh, with my father started with nothing, basically. Um, he came to our area with uh, the newspaper said that he wanted to employ three people. He didn't tell the newspaper that one was him and one was my mom of the three, <laughs> and uh, and started by the stretch of imagination a ready mix plant, concrete, and it's a long, it's a kind of a, it's a long story. But we started, uh, he started in the used truck business, then it went into new trucks, and then couldn't get parts, so he started building his own parts. Then he couldn't get the product, so started building his own concrete mixer, and. Um, through that, we were really blessed. We became the largest uh, manufacturer in the world, um, and then we got to, we got to almost 80 percent of the U.S. market. And um, then uh, you know you got to diversify, you got to grow because the company can never stay the same. It's got to continually grow. And so we looked at what do we know how to do. One of the problems is people jump out into a lot of industries that they don't know anything about, and they usually lose their shirt at it. I mean, they lose money at it, and they usually go broke. So we went into things that we knew. We knew, we knew steel, we knew hydraulics, we knew trucks. So we started building garbage trucks and uh, got involved in the garbage truck business. And we, when we, then we sold our business. And uh, we were also in the finance business. We did financing of, uh, of mixer trucks. And that's where I got into understanding a little bit about banking and uh, looked at diversification and uh, bought a little bank. And uh, in uh, outside of Rochester, outside of a little town, and um, you know we bought that. We were at um, we bought it. It was 26 million in assets. Today we're 370 million in assets. So we've been really blessed by growing growing that business as well. Um, went from one office to uh, nine offices. So we've we've gone through a lot of uh, different types of uh, businesses and things like that. So oh, thank you, Denzel. So that gives you a little idea of the level of expertise of the people you're talking to. So, Rusty, um, you come to us from just a little bit north of here, not far. Um, tell us about your background in industry. So I'll, I'll tell a little bit of history uh, that, uh, for those who might not know, um, I'm a part of a family that is incredibly health nuts. We happen to make a lot of cookies and cakes. So let's go back in the history. It's very interesting that back in the 30s, when my grandfather was going to Southern Junior College here in Collegeville, that um, him and many others recognized that in those years, you didn't have plastic. Plastic wasn't developed until the 50s or something like that to put bread in. So bread went stale pretty quick, or got moldy pretty quick. So that's the day-old bread, you know, just not a good... Uh, good connection to bread. Uh, so those uh, those who are bread makers try to make bread every single day. For those who want your Sabbath off, you add a little sugar to it and make a dessert, all of a sudden you get every day of rest. 
And oddly enough, I, I have about two pages of a, of, I have two page spreadsheet with literally a couple dozen Seventh-day Adventist owned sweet goods, sweet bakeries that were commercial. These are large commercial bakeries that existed in the 40s and 50s. Now since then, there's not as many as they used to be. Uh, and so that's a little bit of our history and a lot of folks don't realize that's how uh, a family that's passionate about the health message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church got to sweet baked goods. Um, and those are the stories that Granddad has told for years and, and a few others. Um, and then, uh, uh, and, and then, oh, but you know, it was interesting. You mentioned about the, the struggles of getting somebody who's really passionate about what they understand. Hydraulic, steel, Denzel was talking about. Uh, for, for my grand, my grandparents, um, my grandfather was just passionate about selling, being an entrepreneur, uh, baking, uh, things of that nature. Uh, my grandmother was like the business mind behind an operation, but she wanted to be a teacher. She never got to be what she wanted to be because she needed to help support her husband, and she was gracious in doing that. But they went 27 years, never going more than two years um, in the black before going in the red again. So they, in many ways, they failed, failed, failed every other year, every third year for 27 years of failure. It really wasn't until the uh, around 1960 that several things happened. We created a brand, created a family pack. And at that point, no one had individual wrap product in a carton altogether. Um, created profit sharing for all employees, not just salary, but hourly in case they had a profit. And, <coughs> and uh, but the most powerful thing is when my dad convinced my grandfather that if they made a profit. That the, that the business, not just personally, but the business would pay a 10% tithe. Okay. And from that point on, this snack cake, cake bakery took off, uh, for during the 70s, especially do double digit growth. Just phenomenal, phenomenal. And so, uh, so we do say the Lord has blessed us in many ways. The best blessing He's ever given us is our employees. You've got to love your employees. You've got to show care and concern about that was an individual for their safety, et cetera, um, and be good stewards of them. And, uh, so again, it's kind of funny. You know, we make a lot of cookies, and yet we're, we're crazy about the health message of the church. Now, Rusty, I don't think, if I remember correctly, you didn't attend one of the supporting ministry schools, but I know you've seen them in operation over the years and um, been very passionate about seeing education happen. Just tell us a little bit about your passion for education, your connection there. Well, on the one aspect about the education part, I should say my sister Dia went to Little Creek. Okay. So we would okay. we'd go up and visit uh, Little Creek growing up as a kid, and uh, it wasn't neat to see that how all the students worked. They had a job, whether that be on the farm, milking cows. In fact, that's where I milked my first cow, was at Little Creek. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I want to go back to this this uh, Bible verse in Genesis that you, you gave us. So when was it that God put uh, Adam and Eve in the garden to tend and to work it? Was that before or after sin? Before. Before sin. Where in the world in academia can you learn a hard work ethic? Mm. You cannot learn a hard work ethic in academia. With books in a classroom, the only way you can learn a hard work ethic is to work. 
And so uh, my passion for our self-supporting schools especially is that we never give up the opportunity of allowing our students to learn that which they maybe, maybe learn nowhere else in life is the work. And if we can make work fun, that's great, but sometimes work isn't fun. <laughs> Amen. That's true. All right. Anything else, Rusty, you want to share about? I'm going to move on and introduce Steve. Let's move on. Okay. So, Steve, you come to us this morning as the business director for CFO for Collegedale Academy. And tell us a little bit about your history in the work of education and helping to manage the business side of that. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Um, I actually uh, I went to Columbia Union College, now Washington Adventist University. I'm um, not a product of the self-supporting schools. I graduated from Shenandoah Valley Academy in Virginia. And um, actually, when I left, I dreamed of going back to work at my academy. My folks had met there. Um, my, my children ended up being fourth generation. Um, and so it was home for me in a lot of ways. And uh, the Lord didn't lead me there for a very long time. But uh, when I finished at Columbia Union College, I had been given an opportunity to start working uh, in the business office and um, stayed six years post-graduation working for my alma mater. Um, one of the finance committee members uh, owned and operated a captive insurance company uh, which is kind of a self-insurance, Adventist risk management is a captive insurance company uh, for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he offered me an opportunity to um, leave uh, CUC and then start to work for him as his CFO. That was a very difficult choice for me because I had envisioned a, a life working for the church and very much enjoying the ministry, the, the mission emphasis that we uh, had there. Um, he had left uh, the General Conference and started this company and so helped me in that transition. And I spent 14 years there. Actually, as he retired, I was able to uh, take his place as the CEO of this insurance company. Um, I thought I was set. I thought this was the trajectory of my career. We were very involved in church ministry from outside the work. And um, as our kids started to get towards that high school age, we were struggling with what to do. and what would be our next step we had uh, we were my wife and I were lifelong Washingtonians and so there were a lot of choices uh, we had to decide and and I remember my wife saying one evening you know you've always talked about going back to work for an academy that would probably make this decision a lot easier maybe we should pray for that and I will tell you that while I'd never felt a, a weakness in my faith for my passion for the Adventist Church um, not sure that we believed that the whole handwriting on the wall happened in these last times, that that, that was an Old Testament story and, and that we were, you know, uh, not doomed, but uh, destined to use our faculties to make choices and the Lord opened and closed doors, but it often wasn't clear and you just had to pray that you had done the right thing. And so we said, well, you know, I've, I've been out of the church work for 14 years. Um, they've forgotten me. I'm not getting called anymore. You know, there's... There's none of that kind of connection. Maybe, maybe we should pray for that. If we got a call, that would certainly be something that maybe we would you know, perk up our ears and say that's something that maybe the Lord is asking us to do. It took three days. And we got wow. a call to Shenandoah Valley Academy as the business manager, which was my fantasy job. Uh, I, didn't have the, I didn't have the teaching bug, but I'm passionate about education, believe in its evangelistic tool. The, the opportunity to mold kids uh, was just something that I felt 
strongly about. So I left my company, uh, called my board chairman, told him I was retiring to uh, a rural community, um, working my way down the corporate ladder, and uh, he uh, was very supportive because family is, uh, uh, you know, family and, and, and ministry is important. So I spent some years there, and that's where I got uh, reacquainted with industry, the work opportunities. You know, I was fortunate, even without a uh, background in in the self-supporting side, to come up through the school system in the 70s when work was still a component, when work was still an important part. I remember I needed to work. That was the only way we could afford my family for me to stay at the school. So uh, we reacquainted, uh, realizing how much had changed in 20-plus years and how culture had started to infiltrate that whole idea of industry and work. Um, I spent some time there, uh, had an opportunity to join Adventist Risk Management back at the General Conference building because the, uh, the, uh, the insurance background that I had was something that partnered well, and there weren't a lot of insurance professionals that actually worked for the church. And so I used that opportunity again every time thinking that that's where I'm going to end up finishing my career. Um, my kids came to Southern. They settled in uh, this area. Um, one's married, and, and uh, we were feeling that distance. And they called us one day and said, you know, the uh, Greater College Dale School System, CFO, uh, has just uh, decided he's leaving. You've been bugging us to move your direction. Maybe you should move here. And again, we went through a season of prayer to say, you know, education draws me back every time. I, I leave, come back, leave. And it's just that passion for being on campus. And so we uh, put our put our paperwork through and doors opened and I ended up back here. It's my fourth school year here in College Dale. It's the first time I've lived in this area. First time I've been more than two hours away from the Washington, D.C. area. So it's a bit of a cultural change, and, and it's a lot hotter than I like. I, I would prefer the, the cooler sides of things, but um, that's that's what brought me here. And the Greater College Hill School System has about 750 students. It's K-12, to pre-K-12. to uh, It's a very different animal than uh, university or boarding school. It's now day school, constituent church members, and lots of things to learn. But that's that's kind of the circuitous route that brought me here. So you can see this morning that we have a wide diversity of experience represented. And if we went around the room this morning here, we would even add to that level of experience with people who have been engaged in school industry, some for a few years, some for longer, and the experiences they have had. So as we talk about this topic, we want to engage you as well. So if you come to the point, we have a microphone here. If you have questions, uh, we want to consider those questions as a part of this discussion today because the objective is very practical today. We believe that industry is a part of education. And it's given to us in the scriptures from the beginning. We live in a very complex world today. But how do we still do industry and have it be a part of education in the way that God would have us to. And so that's what we're discussing today. I'm hoping and praying that as we discuss it, as God impresses you with a burning question, that you will ask it and feel free to ask it. And uh, we can journey through this together and learn something that we can take home and put into practice. Not just a theoretical thing, but some things that we can actually take home and put into practice. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to ask Rusty a question. I'm going to pick on Rusty this morning because he shared something with me. He said, I brought some gifts this morning. 
And, and Rusty, you brought a piece of paper, and you showed me your piece of paper. And you said, maybe we could pass these out even before. But I want you just to talk a little bit about why did you bring us this gift, and what does it mean to you in the context of education and industry? Okay, so I, I have a comical side to my personality. And so as I walked in, I was telling the gentleman, I said, you know what, I don't think I have anything to add to this conversation, but I brought some gifts, so at least I'll leave something for somebody. But I do have a passion for, um, for this, this statement here, because I think so often in our church, we get so easily distracted that I think it's important to remind ourselves why we exist. And so here's a statement. It says, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning to a perishing world. This is the last warning. There's no more warnings after this. This is it. And yet the Lord is what? Entrusted us. My question to you and to myself is, should the Lord have trusted us in the first place? Probably not. Mm. Is there time to regain that trust? Absolutely. On them is a shining, wonderful light from the Word of God. Now that one right there, I, I, I'm passionate about again because on them is the shining, wonderful light from the Word of God. Did the Israelites, did they, did they have the truth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But were they like us in the sense that we're fallen man? So in many ways, on the Israelites, on them, on us, is this shining, wonderful light from the Word of God, kind of like the moon. How much light does the moon give off? Whatever it reflects. It's, it just reflects. It's a dirty old rock up there in the sky. In many ways, the Israelites, in many ways, we, uh, all men has fallen. We're just a dirty stone. But the beautiful thing is God has this beautiful shining light that re to reflect off of us. If the Israelites only maintained these words right here, then maybe not would have got the proud heart that they had and they're so distracted. Nothing special about, special about us, just the message, the truth is. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and what? Third. Angel's message. And then the next two lines just really strike me so strong to the heart. There is no other, what? Work. So great of importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. So when you think about all the things that as a church we get distracted with, how often do we come back to the foundation of why we're, why we're here? I'm getting a little bit further off track, um, and I can easily do that. That's why it's easier for me, to, better for me to pass this on to somebody else. Um, Have you ever seen the Beverly Hillbillies black and white sitcom? Yeah, we don't want to admit it, do we? We don't want to admit it. Um, long story short, uh, I found the Beverly Hillbillies Bible Studies. It's a three-series, booklet around 25 pages, and I've shown it to a few people. And we, you kind of snicker and you kind of laugh. You watch a 20-minute sitcom, black and white, Beverly Hillbillies, and then you go through the Bible studies. What was Jed's character like? Jed Clampett. Was he trustworthy? I'm seeing some nods. We don't want to admit it. Yeah, he was trustworthy. Was he kind? Was he considerate? Was he thoughtful? Yeah. Honest? 
So somebody will look through that Bible study and they go, yeah, that's great, Rusty, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have the second coming of Christ. It doesn't have the three angels' message. It doesn't have the state of the dead. It doesn't have the sanctuary. And my next question to them is, in the last year, how many sermons did you hear that were specifically on those four things, five things you just mentioned? My response is, you must be going to Beverly Hillbillies Seventh Avenue Church. Mm. How often are we getting off track? Because so many of the doctrines of this church perfectly align to the first, second, third angel's message. If we wouldn't get off track, we'd be carrying on what God entrusted us with. So I happen to, I have such a passion. I happen to have, um, there's a lot of good books. I just got a new book uh, from uh, Robert Polkenberg Jr. on the same topic. It's much shorter. This one here is Three Angels, One Message by John A. T. Anderson. Interestingly, he chose to present the entire first, second, third angels message and only using the Bible. You can give this to any person who believes the Bible has truth and is truth. And the whole first, second, third angels message to this. That's why I think this is a pretty powerful. Is that enough? Yeah, thank you, Rusty. Right, I appreciate that. So I've got I got these for everybody. So so this this morning Though you have brought us back to track, because what I hear you saying is, we have a message for the world that was given to us by divine mandate. Just like we have a plan of education that was given to us by divine mandate. The plan of education is actually to prepare young people to share this message with the world. So these things are just all tied together. Don't try to tear it apart and separate it. If we do not prepare a generation of young people who can share this message with the world, we have failed in our mission. And following God's plan for education is the only way that we have any chance. Human plans, it's done. We're toasted already. If we will do our best to follow God's plan, we may have, at least we have the confidence knowing that it's not our problem at that point. So it, it fits right with what we're talking about. We have institutions and industries to train young people to take this message to the world. And my passion is to see it happen in this generation because this is the generation I live in and I want to be alive when Jesus comes. And so, thank you, Rusty, for sharing that with us. Um, we're, we're going to really get to the topic now. Maybe. Maybe we're on the topic. You know, maybe we're on the topic already. But we're going to talk specifically some now about industry itself. Denzel, you were raised in an institutional setting uh, at, at uh, Little Creek with your schooling there. How did industry work on that campus? Because I, I, for one, I have a lot of confidence in Professor Straw, who ran Lorbrook, who's a great man of God, who, I want to tell you an experience I had with him. He came to our institution one time for some kind of seminar we were doing, and he got out his book. I was immediately engaged in what he was about to say. 
And, but what I was trying to figure out is how he could even use the book. It was the book education. And the pages were literally coming out of the book. It was not like, okay, no, you had to be careful with this book. And he opened up his book. And it was, there were no pages that didn't look like they had been read. They were marked. They were highlighted. There was sticky notes. There was, I think there was a couple of rubber bands holding the book together. So Denzel, tell us, what was the, what was the concept, the, the, the idea of industry that you went away with from that setting? Well, first of all, I think it was important, and I'm sure some of you do this in your schools, but our first English class was the book education. That's Amen. This is draw taught us was education. That was the first thing we went through was education as freshmen. And that really had an impact. I mean, I can still to this day quote, quote, uh, memorization that I learned from Mrs. Straw there. Um, what industry did is it made, it made me get um, what I believe a more rounded viewpoint of the world because I was able to go to different uh, industries. Back then we had um, no, no more than two students per faculty member in industry. We, uh, we worked a half a day, we went to school a half a day, we worked six hours on Sunday, um, and, uh, and it was a real blessing because, and the other part of it was, you couldn't get the same job twice. You, every semester you switched jobs and you always went to different industries. And that was such a blessing because I got to learn how to, like I worked in a dairy and I learned I never wanted to work in a dairy again, okay? But I also learned how to plant wheat. And I learned how to harvest the wheat. We learned how to um, grind the wheat. We learned how to bake bread. Uh, you know, so I followed the whole process all the way through. You know, we had to, we had a dairy. We had a, uh, chickens where we got eggs. Uh, so worked in that part. Uh, you know, uh, my rows were definitely not straight. Uh, you know, um, I learned how to do bakery. I mean, learned how to work with concrete, which I already knew from my my other business. But I had to do that. I learned how to plumb do wiring, I mean, I, we roughed, I did all those those work, worked in a, a nursing home or a sanitarium as we called it back then, loved that work. Um, so I had a really rounded education. Now you gotta realize I came from a factory background so I was used to uh, dealing with uh, people that were, uh, you know, that uh, worked uh, worked hard for a living, when, I, when my dad calls it a working man. Um, and, uh, you know, and you know, they weren't Adventists. Okay, they weren't Adventists at all. Like, uh, like we said, they know every four-letter word except soap. Um, and uh, but the, but these men were really hardworking, nice, gracious. They they really were really wanted to take care of their family. That, that this was the job they're in. I'm talking about the factory workers I worked with in in the mixer manufacturing. Or at that time, we were just building parts. But I'll never forget. I was with uh, uh, Prof Straw, and uh, I remember we were doing some plumbing. And I was, it was just him and I working together down below. And I remember a pipe wrench slept, and I mean it hit his knee, and I mean he did, he, I mean he started tears coming down his eye. He goes, boy that hurt, boy that hurt. And I never were so impressed because every time I ever heard that from any place else, I heard a whole line of adjectives that went on forever. And here Prof had gotten his knee hurt, and all he just his tears running down his eyes. That hurt. That really hurt. And walked around, you know, to get the pain off of this from that, and that had such an impact on me as a student 
that um, I just I never seen that before. So Denzel, I hear you saying several things. I hear you saying the impact came from teachers working with students. Yes. And I think that's a foundational principle that we need to do better at as institutions, honestly. Where students and teachers are working together every day. I hear you saying that there was variety. That you learned not just one thing but a number of different skills during your stay there. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So I, I want to tag into this now, and I want to go to Steve, and I want to ask you, Steve, you've been in the business side, the, the bookkeeping side, the let's make it work financially side, uh, and you've seen school industry more from that perspective, maybe. Share with us today what do you see, and I know that the school you're working at right now does not have an industry base necessarily, but as we were talking, I felt your passion immediately to say, yes, I believe this should be. And when you said you were at Shenandoah Valley, what do you see as some of the criteria that maybe, maybe we're missing something because it's not prevalent in most of our schools? And even the ones that we do have, we're going to be very honest today, most of our industries that we do have are struggling. That's the reality of it. What, what are we, from your perspective, what are we missing? What are the things that, that you would say are key to this that maybe we're, we're missing a cog here or something? Well, it's, I think each decade, each generation, um, gets more challenging from, from a number of perspectives. Um, popular culture and expectations that families have for their children, um, regulation, uh, things that we didn't maybe deal with in the 50s or the 70s or, you know. Um, my experience with the industries that we, we did uh, have in, in boarding academy um, we really struggled with um, work blocks. Enough time because of the uh, requirements of the academic side. You know, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to what Rusty said, which is that we learn in so many different ways. Academia is important, the textbooks and the reading is important, but we've gotten out of balance with that. As the state, as different educational um, associations require more and more things, even between two children that were three years apart, my son's high school experience was so much more academic than even my daughter's simply because they added another science, another history. These are not unimportant subjects in any way. But at some point, the daily schedule becomes so jammed with <clears throat> academic that we struggled, uh, and again, this is now 15 years ago, we struggled with trying to get enough time set aside for a student to actually gainfully work. How do, you, how, do you, how do you go out by the time you prep and you get started and then an hour later you're stopping and you're shutting down and you're moving? I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to work a printing press. Uh, I worked with a, in, a, in a press uh, shop and well before the ease of the computer side of things, I mean, this is go in and get the ink in the press, make the metal plates, you know, uh, I learned, I, I'm thinking about what I learned from 
uh, the mistakes I made, um, the, the grace that I got from uh, mentor supervisors, um, the times when I didn't, you know, and you, you kind of went back and said, okay, I don't want to be that kind of supervisor again. Um, where you, if I don't clean the press, if I don't, if I try to take some shortcuts, boy, tomorrow it's going to be gummed up and it's going to be worse and I'm going to pay that price. Those are all things I was able to learn just in that one and I had a couple of different opportunities. Um, but that took a lot of time. I couldn't go over there for an hour between classes and then jump back. I mean, you were hours and hours to get set up, run a reasonable uh, run of, of, of printing, and then clean up and go back. And, and so I think uh, as parents, uh, more and more of us expect our children to be professionals. They have to uh, study for the SAT. They have to make sure they're going to succeed, get in the best, you know, schools, the best colleges, the best. And, and that starts to compress what parents and students expect of their work, of their day. And I think work has been one of the casualties of that because, um, I mean, we, we routinely would talk with families that would come in and some of them were able to put down a, a year's worth of tuition and their argument was, I don't need my child to work because I want them to study, I want them to do well, I'm, you know, they're going to be a professional. And we would say, you're missing the opportunity. First of all, it wasn't by policy allowed and that was a real challenge when you have families that have already paid and don't need the income side. We said, you know, there's a, there's a discipline, there's a responsibility that they learn. Um, we really struggled, and again, this is 15, 20 years ago. Um, now we just have that many more uh, requirements uh, that make, uh, I think, uh, the work opportunities much more difficult to manage from the, from, you know, from the management side. Then you add regulation. And you think of child labor laws, you think of what some of our boarding schools are going through right now that are trying to, you know, they had that rotation where they worked in the morning, school in the afternoon. And I believe it's Georgia is really, really struggling because, you know, child labor laws don't allow 14 and 15 year olds to work during the school day. Well, how do you define the school day? By the public school structure. It's everywhere, okay? Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, our model has become uprooted by regulations. Now, is that the devil at work? Yeah. Yeah. It's not that we're not, that child labor isn't, you know, that wasn't maybe abused years and years ago. There were, there are reasons for some of these things, but we're, you know, kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. We're losing focus on the intent of the law, the intent of the regulation, and the, uh, the you know, the obtuse following of that has made it much harder than now for us to use our, the, the models that we're used to. So how do you run an industry that starts at three in the afternoon? How do you work through the things that they can no longer do that we were able to do when perhaps we were younger? Um, I think those are some of the challenges from the business side that, that every industry faces. I, I want to go to Rusty because Rusty employs, I'm going to say 10,000 people. I may be wrong. 6,000 people. So 6,000 employees at McKee Baking Company, okay? That's a lot of people. So I think, Rusty, you could give us a perspective on, we're talking about what I hear say, and I hear you saying, Steve, is that we've been torn apart by the academic pressure and the imbalance in our system, possibly. We've been torn apart by regulation. We've been torn apart by risk. We've been torn apart in a number of areas that's caused us to, uh, in essence, to a degree, abandon that very important. I think we were talking before another issue, and I think you mentioned it even there briefly, was that 
there's family pressure. The families are really hesitant to have their students engaged in that way. But I want to ask you, Rusty, you hire a lot of people. What characteristics are you looking for in your employees? And, and I want you to take the whole spectrum. You've got some people that their job is to take one box from one place and put it in another place. You've got other people that are highly skilled in a certain area that you need them to show up and, and perform that skill at a very high degree. What are the kinds of things that when you're thinking about hiring somebody, what are the what are the elements that you are looking for? So, from the manufacturing stand um, today, you have you know Steve was talking about all the different laws and rules. Um, any of your tests, any of your interviewing type of um, things you have to um, fill out, and and especially in kind of test, it has to be validated. Because if you're giving a test and you can't show that it, uh, it perfectly aligns with the job you're hiring on and yet you're making decisions on it, it can lead you into a lot of legal issues. So in the past dozen years or so, or a couple dozen, uh, it's been really hard and a lot of money to go through and validate all of our, our testing processes. For manufacturing, just so happens, one has continued to prove that work. It's a dexterity test. And it's actually the speed at which they can take this uh, this, uh, this, uh, these wooden, um, round, colored objects, and this board goes back and forth, and the timer stops, and it shows how fast you can move these, you know, the round, round colored odd, odd items into a, into the right colored um, area or shape, because if you're colorblind, it's fine too. Um, and so that right away just tells us speed and coordination, because in manufacturing, we got things that are moving pretty quick. If you can pass that test, then you can handle most any kind of uh, cookies can met you 90 miles an hour. That's, they don't go 90, but it sure feels that way sometimes. Um, but oddly enough, if I was going to back up, uh, the, the, and, and I like doing uh, orientation, um, oddly enough, the number one reason why employees lose their employment is, per, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, tardiness. Just not showing up at work on time. And the most foundational basic thing you can imagine uh, can be taught in education, showing up on time to your classes. I mean, that, that should be taken very seriously. If you can't show up on time to your class, you're, and, and your students are not uh, being prepared for the work world of the future. Um, if, they, um, if they're distracted by other interests outside of class and just miss the whole class session, they're probably not going to do very well in the real world of employment. So um, that's, that's just some of the more foundational things. Um, other things we, we hope we've done a good job is in our, in our validation process is those that will align with our culture. And culture in every single business is absolutely everything, everything, everything. Um, you, I, you heard me mention the words before, um, you know, care, concern, uh, honesty, um, um, thoughtfulness, trust, um, their integrity. Um, those things cannot be taken lightly. Um, so those, those will be the foundation so, issues. So 
This is what I'm hearing you say, and I'm just repeating what I'm hearing to emphasize to our group here today. I'm hearing you say the person needs to be able to show up on time. They probably need some dexterity skills. I'm hearing you say you want someone with character. You want them to be honest. You want them to be um, transparent. You want them to be... You want them to have really, if you, you probably would really like all your employees to have a godly character because that would answer honesty, integrity, truthfulness, all those things, right? That's true, but we are an equal opportunity employer. So, <laughs> so we have atheists, agnostics, we have every single religion, no religion you can imagine. But just like Jed Clampett, Jed Clampett still had those foundational characteristics. So, I want to go to now, I want to go to the statement that we have alluded to. The greatest want of the world is the want of men and women who will what? Somebody help me. Not going to be bought or sold. They're going to stand for the truth of the heaven's fall. They're going to be as true to duty as a needle to the pole. And we can list that. If you had today an opportunity to hire 50 people with that kind of ethic, would those be good matches for your... Yeah, yeah it would be the greatest blessing we could ever have. Okay. Denzel, I want to ask you this question. You've traveled the world. You've been from pole to pole. And you've done it in the context of mission mostly. And I know Denzel except, well enough... Except Antarctica. <laughs> okay, you took some penguin pictures in Antarctica for fun. Okay? But I know Denzel when he travels. Okay? He comes back with a report about what God's work is doing in a certain part of the world vineyard. Because he shares those reports with us in some of the committees and stuff. And I'm always encouraged and I just love to hear those reports. So Denzel, I know that even though you're not physically out there living in the mission field today, that you've been to see ministries in every corner of the globe. What kind of people, what kind of characteristics are those institutions looking for? And do you see as bringing value to those institutions? Same characteristics as Rusty mentioned. Oh, sorry. The same characteristics as Rusty mentioned. You want, you want integrity. You want the same characteristics. You also need someone who has, they have, a, have to have a passion. One thing Rusty mentioned earlier is his, his grandfather had a passion. You have to have passion for what you do. In the ministries, you know, you um, you were alluding to your Harvard Hills, and I was thinking about that. You know, you have your brother that runs and has passion, is running that uh, nursing. nursing home. You know, and I've visited with him, and he knows that industry, and he, oh, yeah. he, he, he lives it, breathes it. And, and you have to have in your ministry, in your industries, you have to have people that are passionate for that business. I always say you have to have a champion. I remember when we started, we started a division of uh, building concrete plants, okay? And so we built concrete plants, and we couldn't sell them. I mean, we hardly sold them at all. So what we realized, we didn't have a champion. So I hired a person that he made his living on concrete plants. He did not make his living if he did not sell concrete plants. And he lived or died on that, on that product. And we started getting involved in it. We got to be the largest plant manufacturer in the world through that type too. But the point was is that we had to, every time I 
developed a new line or a new product system, I had to have a champion. A new company, you have to have a champion who runs it, that lives it, because if you don't, um, it will fail. So I, we've added passion to the list of things we're trying to bring to the table. Now these are the reason we're talking about this is most of these things are learned more effectively in an industry setting than they are in a classroom. I've had people, I've been affiliated and associated with people who could talk me under the table regarding the world of agriculture. And uh, Brother Dysinger here has some experience in that. I had a guy come to our campus. He just was the expert. I mean, he had all the presentations. He had just everything across the board. It was beautiful. And he said, uh, but I didn't totally feel like, hey, this is the perfect bit or whatever. He said, uh, do you have a, uh, you know, it's there for a while. He said, can I use a piece of your ground here? And I said, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me just show you a piece you can have and do whatever you want with. He ended up growing some tomatoes and some vegetables that could not be eaten. He knew the theory, but he couldn't produce. So I'd like to add the word a producer to our list. Okay? He knew the theory, but he couldn't produce. Even the best that he knew the theory, he couldn't produce. Well, he didn't produce. I'll say that. I don't know if he could or not, but he didn't in our setting. So we have a need for these characteristics to be trained. We have a need for the passion to be given. We have a need for a level of production, real kind of production in an industry setting. You could have the most beautiful equipment in your plant, but if it's not actually producing something, you could talk about cookies all day. And you could have beautiful pictures of cookies all day, but if it was not actually producing cookies, you're out of business, right? So that's another industry foundational idea. But it's also like uh, you study the Bible, but how do you really learn your by sharing, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same principle applies. You're sharing sharing what you learn. One of the other things that principles that I learned when I was at Little Creek that really impressed me was when it was strawberry season. Everybody went out and picked strawberries. There was no, I mean, I'm talking about from the president on to everybody. Went out, school was canceled. We went out and we, we picked strawberries. Wait, wait, wait. School was not canceled. No, no, school was, okay, thank you. Thank you. I looked at it. I was a kid who, I preferred to be out in the strawberry patch than in the classroom. Amen, amen. So to me, it was, that was a positive. But it wasn't canceled because we were educated. Right, you were, you were getting an education, but, right? But the education, the education, I'm sorry, the education was is that we were able to, um, that when it was strawberry season, you had to do the strawberries. You had to work. You had to do whatever it took to get the job done at the time it took to get it done. And you couldn't just think about it because if you didn't, that rot. You knew why you were there. You know, you talk about passion, and that's not just from the leadership. Maybe, maybe that's where it starts, but every single person in the process, that's what you're leaning for is passion from the, from the entry level to the, to the CEO. Because when they know why they're doing something, when they know they're a part of something bigger, you know, I mean, we would have students that would work in industry and certainly they needed to be there to afford to stay in school. That, that was a driving force for them. Um, 
but when we could really talk to them about how they were a part of something larger than just earning a few dollars to stay in school, when they were, a, a, you know, I'm going to say a cog in the wheel, not in a negative way, but they were an important, you know, every spoke in the wheel makes the wheel stronger. When, when they were part of something, they became more passionate about their little piece. And that changed them, it changed the leadership, you know, the, the, the difficulties you would have with perhaps managing these kids um, when they started to understand that they were a part of something bigger than just showing up and earning a paycheck. That's where passion came from. All right, I'm going to take Wanda's question. It's not really a question, it's just comment. a comment. Um, you know, it really resonated with me when Denzel said passion, somebody who has a passion. And as I was thinking about that, you know, and as I've studied about Madison, that was one of the things that happened in Madison. Um, students started a lot of the industries that Madison had because they had an idea, they had a passion, and and the administration. Now we're dealing with a younger set of students, but um, you know I think that that could be engaged um, to create even more passion for an industry if you could engage students in helping to make it real. See, I, be I believe that today your students have a greater opportunity than ever before. Because if you can give a, a student the desire to know how to add, how to, you know, in their head, instead of trying to put it on a computer, if you can give them wanting to show up to work every day when wanting to to uh, do an industry or a trade or just educate him. There is so much opportunity out there today because all these kids out here are educated in things that are worthless. You know, I'll give a perfect example. I had a, I had a lady, young, young lady who worked as our receptionist. I found out she was going to go to college. I said, oh, that's great. I'm glad you're going to go to college. So she went to college four years later. I see her on one of our teller lines working. And she got a four-year degree in photography. She got $160,000 in debt. And she was working for us as a teller because she couldn't get a job as a photographer. Now, I like photography as a hobby. But you can't make a living at it. It's hard to make a living at it. <coughs> And so, you know, the thing is, is that we're educating, a lot of kids today are educated on things that are not valuable. Everywhere you go, there's help wanted signs for industry, for, for, for learning how to do things. Do, for an example, I was just with a customer yesterday, uh, this week, and uh, they, they, they're needing mechanics. They're, they're doing signing bonuses for mechanics. They said, we'll even train you. We'll train you on how to be a mechanic if you just show up. We'll give you the skills, and I mean, we're talking. Th these people are making seventy to ninety thousand dollars a year as a mechanic. And if you start thinking about industry and trades, and you start going through the education of and all the costs of education today, what are they? If you look at your payback period. Where are they in their sixties before they even break even? You know. So I mean, there's there's a lot of opportunity today with young people. I think more than ever before. And I think if we can instill that in our institutions in a work-study program to where they can learn industry and get that practical skills, you're, you're giving some, uh, an invaluable tool to them. To the, to them. Can, I, can I tell you a story uh, that, that I think directly ties to that? And, and, you know, the schools are, 
you know, one of the areas where there can be a problem if they're not focused on the things that, that are necessary. But I think, um, you know, again, they're operating within a, they're not operating in a vacuum. Often there are outside external pressures that make that harder. I, I mentioned, um, you know, uh, family and cultural demands on, I mean, I wish, I wish our students knew what employers were looking for. You know, they come in expecting, um, that the resume and the clubs that they were president of and all the leadership things are going to, and, and, and those are, you know, not unimportant, but they're looking, you're, you know, you're looking for somebody that comes in that's passionate, that, that has integrity. How do you test those things? You know, that's the hard part. I wish our kids understood that. We, um, we lost, uh, the industry that we had when I was, when I was there at Chenado. Um, we ended up with, uh, it was about 18 months in between trying to find another business partner that would, you know, provide the opportunities for our students to work. Uh, you know, when you talk to uh, a major business and you say your primary labor source is high school students, you know, they run right out of the room. It's a little scary for them because there's so many things that come with that and they just don't understand how that could possibly work. During that period of time, we had a couple of warehouses, um, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands of square feet that was empty. We're still kind of paying on the building. We're paying the utilities. We're trying to figure out how do we use this. We had a, a group of master electricians, plumbers, contractors in our rural area that said, you know, we're missing something in education. We've, we don't do auto mechanics anymore. We don't do you know, things that, you know, I was, like I said, I grew up doing. Um, we had a welding program, and about five or six kids every year would, would graduate with their welding certificate. And I, we have an industry right in our area that'll pay, I think, 60, they're paying 60, 70 bucks an hour because they can't get welders. Nobody, nobody will weld, and they're desperate for welders. Um, so these guys came to us and they said, you know, we're, we're missing the boat. We need to start with a vocational track, a, a, an area where kids can learn these practical skills and not, not for the ones that aren't going to go to college and are, are, you know, on the side, part of our educational system. And my principal and I, we just, we embrace that. So that's, that's absolutely a great idea. Of course, a boarding school has 13 periods in a day, so you have lots more opportunity. I'm learning that at day school, you know, everything's more compressed, but, we, we, we worked, you know, the administration on realigning the academic day, trying to fit uh, vocational opportunities in there, home improvement. We had these huge warehouses we could build walls and run wiring and plumb things and you know, all the stuff that, that is practical that we need to do in our own homes. And the parents screamed bloody murder. They just fought us tooth and nail because our children, <laughs> they're not going to be, they don't need vocational. They need to study for their, I mean, you hear, you know, you hear the some post-traumatic stress here. They, they gotta study for their, their ACT. They gotta study for their, you know, they, they, that's, that's not what our children are gonna do. They're gonna be doctors and lawyers. They're gonna be, you know, professionals. You've heard me say that now. And it, it could not get off the ground because the, the outside pressures and the, again, the cultural requirements, they didn't understand that, and, and I use my, my uncle, my grandfather was a house builder. My uncle grew up can, you know, he, 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 he got the call for pastoral ministry. When they build something onto the church, he's the one up on the roof, you know, uh, doing the work. And, um, he went back after married and had a couple kids, went back into, uh, school. But he worked his way through school as a mechanic, as a, as a carpenter. He knew those skills. He didn't come out with, and of course he didn't come out with loans like that back then. But the idea that you could perhaps go through school working in a, in a trade that might minimize some of those costs, that 160000 you come out with, they could not grab that concept. And it, it was the most frustrating experience in the world because we had opportunity, we had people that were there that were volunteering, they loved the school, they were going to volunteer their time, 
we had worked it all out. It's just part of the culture. And we, you know, in that, air, in that little window of time, it was very, very difficult to get out the outside pressures to allow us to even move forward. And, you know, to this day, they're still, what I know of that school, they're still, you know, struggling to get, how do we get any kind of auto mechanics, home improvement, any of these kinds of classes back into the curriculum? Okay. So I'm hearing something that we're still talking about, a topic that was brought up some time earlier. How do we deal with this tension between the practical training and the academic side? Because we have the parents that are pulling us into this equation and saying, I want my child to get a full-ride scholarship on a 36-score ACT. It's true. We have that pull. On the other side, we have the model of Madison and the need for people that industry is crying for to have those basic foundational concepts of how to show up on time, be honest, be all those basic things that can be taught very well in the industry side of education. And Issei is here at this juncture in time. Our mission is to promote this model of education, not another model of education. Our mission is to promote this model. And we have a passion to do that. But we live in today's world where parents are crying for this. And there's this tension between the balance. How do we do this and still maintain and go to the future? And so I think that, uh, and I want to check with Wanda on schedule. Let me just ask you, are you okay without a break and we just go straight through? Or would you guys like a break? Because I think we're probably at a point where we should have taken a break. We've got about another hour and a half. Okay. All right. Um, break or no break? Those who think we should take a break, raise your hand. We'll do, uh, those who would just like to continue, just don't raise your hand. Okay. All right. If you need a break, let me just say this. If you need a break, just take one. Just, just go and, you know, what you need to do, do it. Uh, and otherwise, we'll continue straight through and try not to lose our momentum here. But, so we live in this world where there's tension. The only thing I say, you've all heard of the famous chess player Bobby Fischer. You know how you beat him? Don't blame chess. <laughs> you don't, you don't okay. play the game. Play the game you can win. You know, you, you, have, a, you have a unique product. You know, how, how, how businesses are successful is through their niches. You have a unique product that's needed and wanted. And uh, just focus on what you're good at and be the best you can be at that of, of what you're doing here. You know, you, you know, if you want a person that, uh, I always said, you know, if I wanted to send my kids to the most academic school in the world, I would have sent them to Harvard or Yale or something like that. But that wasn't why I sent my kids. The reason why I sent my kids to school was, number one, I wanted to have a relationship with Christ. Number two, I wanted to have a, find an Adventist mate. And number three, I wanted Adventist friends. And number four, I wanted them to have a good education. Okay? Well, we try to make number four number one. But that's not what we're about. And so we got to constantly remember what, what we're good at. And it's just reinforcing that. I think it's very important. You know, you're talking about a work-study program or, and industry. That is such a key factor. 
So parents that want to go, you know, that want their education, you go, you, you, you there's a lot of people out there looking for it. I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the business side. I'm in the, I'm, uh, uh, talking to Adventist lay, uh, lay people a lot, they're looking for schools that can give their, their kids that practical experience. You know, that's we, we talk about it a lot. And so, you know, that's, I think, it's important is that you get, like when I went to Little Creek, it didn't matter whether you were the wealthiest person in the world or you were the poorest person in the world, you had to work those many days. There was no options. You picked strawberries. You picked strawberries. <laughs> my, do, uh, my, my wife, who, uh, who came from a poor family, I mean, she because she was able to work, she was able to almost pay her whole tuition by by the, by working in the school all the time, and it was such a blessing to her. And you'd listen to what, you know, she's a nurse today because of it, because of her practicality that she got in Little Creek. So I mean, it's it's, I think you got to remember what you're what you're about, and don't get sidetracked on some of these other issues. Okay. I just want to make comment, and then we'll take this question follow up here. Denzel just gave you, I don't know if you wrote that down, but he gave you a marketing principle. Okay, because it's one of the things we're talking about today. Don't try to be who you're not. If your mission is clear in what you're doing, then be who you are. And, and uh, so I appreciate you bringing us back to that concept. Let's not try to be who we're not, but let's be strong at who we are and this balanced education model that we want to follow, let's not get as distracted maybe as we could. Brother Baker. So there's, that's a good point that was made about the work study and the difficulty with uh, parents. When Madison started, it targeted the poorest of the students, which means you wouldn't have the parents complaining about that sort of thing. Now that's harder. If your school is already established, you really can't. It's that's that's harder to deal with once the school is already established. But doesn't it then stand to reason that there needs to be an education of the parents for what the school's principles and purposes are about, so they can be in alignment? And if they're not in alignment, then they can make other decisions. But basically, you're here. You know, you kind of said, "Hey, this is the deal: rich or poor. You're here, and this is what we do here." And that kind of has to be established. This is our purpose here, and if you don't cooperate with that purpose, then maybe it's not a good fit for both of us. Uh, because otherwise, that attitude pervades, and then your school doesn't have that purpose anymore. Right? It morphs. So um, targeting the right people and educating the people who are involved is probably very important to making it work. What Russie told in his business, what he when he was talking, is very critical. That you didn't hear was the fact of culture, and you got to keep the culture of your school is the same thing as the culture of a business. You know, and and Russie hit something that's so important. Most people don't realize. You know, as, as I look at businesses and look at merging, and I talk to financing businesses that you know buying people out and things like that. We do it all the time. I really sit there and you you look at the numbers. But the numbers only gives you so much. You've got to get into the culture of it because that is something that can make or break a company more than the numbers could ever make. And so it's very important to keep that culture going. And that's the same thing with your school, your institution. You know, um, you know, I know like um, at your at your school, you have a culture there that's very special, and that culture is maintained 
and then people know what that is, they know what to expect, and they know the quality of product that you get, which is the students that come out of the school. You know, it, it really, it really, uh, you know, it really makes a statement as time goes on. Angel. Um, just um, to start from where my brother talked about with the re-education of parents, um, I have some background in public school, and the students we work with, the uh, community we were in, one of the first things, first off at school, we dealt with the parents. We even had them sign. We explained what the program is going to be, and they had to sign that you are willing to support what we're doing throughout the school year. There's an education of the parents. We invited them in because we realized we have the students for only a certain amount of time, but they go back to their families. And so we had to educate the parents because they're with them as to how to support what we're doing in the classroom all day long. So I think we need to think about that as we're um, interacting with our parents, because even if it's a dorm setting and not a day school, kids go home on breaks. And it doesn't matter how much we're doing with them when they're with us, for these little periods when they go home, they get reimmersed into a totally different culture it's basically a taking them several steps back, and then they come back, and we have to make up that ground before we move forward. So the, the education or re-education of our parents are very important. Um, again, what he mentioned about um, sometimes it's not a good fit. We're looking for our students to come. We want to take everyone, but sometimes it's just not a good fit. So we need to pretty much explain this is our niche. This is what we're about. We're going to try to do this, this, and this, but our focus, we want to prepare your child to meet Christ. And if that is not your priority, maybe you need to look at something else. We would really love for you to choose us, because this is what, but maybe you need to pray about and see if there's something else. But I want to go back to what... Um, I think it was Steve was talking about the different challenges that are out there, and it's real. Because, yes, we might understand what we want to do, but if you're just constantly hitting a rock and trying to figure out, you're going to just kind of go into what's easy. It's because every day you got to do something, and you kind of fall into the easiest path. And what I hear and what I'm, what's in my brain is the importance for us to make sure we're aligning our practical and our academics. There are ways to integrate to help us as the teachers and the um, to recognize that my math class may not just always happen in my classroom. How can I work along with the baker or the gardener to continue my math lesson with what he's doing there and to make sure my student understand that my lesson didn't end when I stepped out of my four walls. My class is continuing because that is the model that we have, theory and practice. And so if all I'm doing is theory and um, artificial problems, and I'm not using the real-life problems, like this is the math. Now we're going into the garden to do our measurements. 
because we need to plant a row of potatoes or whatever it is. And them seeing the real life application creates that passion that they're not getting into, why do I have to work? Why do I have to pull the weeds out of this ground? They don't see any practicality. And we need the why, not just for the students, but also for us as the teachers, before we are going to have that passion to be able to explain to our parents that going into the garden is preparing your child to take the ACT or to do the SAT. If we don't understand it ourselves, we cannot project that passion onto our parents and definitely not to on, onto the students. Well, my grandmother is a, uh, was, she's passed away now, uh, you know, a master quilter. I mean, just incredible quilting. You know how much geometry goes into quilting? Um, my father-in-law uh, was in the military and plays really mean pool game, billiards. You know how much geometry goes into billiards? You know, kids would go, oh, I don't have to learn geometry. What a waste of time. I'm never going to use it again. Ah, we use algebra. We use, um, you know, I love math. We, we use these things in such ways, and you're right, we don't talk that through. And I'm, I'm going to remember the Beverly Hillbillies Church for a very long time. I, that's phenomenal because you know, I don't want to indict any one segment of our community. We've seen the enemy. It's us. You know, we're parents. We we probably, you know, put some of those same pressures on our own kids if, if we weren't careful. Um, how many education sermons are we hearing? How many? We have an education Sabbath. We have a teacher appreciation Sabbath once a year. Uh, it's exciting. Um, but why isn't that part of one of those tenets that is just constantly reminded to us that our education system that has the balance of life, you know, that's what, that's what Ellen White was about, was balance. You know, it wasn't all of this and all of that, but it was, it was finding that balance. And, and, our, and, our, and our, the purest part of our education system finds that balance. But we're not talking about that from the pulpit. You know, it's, I mean, I'm blaming the parents a lot. I'm beating up on them. But I'm saying they're not hearing those kinds of things. They're, they're hearing the popular culture, which says, how do I score that 36 and how do I, you know, how do I succeed? And so I, I think it's, it's systemic. We're, we, we've started to lose track of, from the, from the pulpit, from, from, from our parenting perspectives, from the schools. If we're not careful, we forget our niche, we take what's easy, and we end up, you know, with, with, uh, you know, the, the, the securitous, uh, river that's just finding the easy path. So I want to bounce off some more things that, uh, Denzel and the young lady and the gentleman here were, were emphasizing. <clears throat> If people understand the purpose of the education model that you're presenting, they clearly understand that. And it is for them to get to know Jesus Christ and His love. He is all He is He is all about servant leadership. And how do you become a servant leadership? You might have to learn how to do jobs that are more Yes. Um and then, on a more comical side, maybe, if we think before sin, God said, we're going to work in the, in the garden, tending it, etc. And then you take that for eternity. Are we going to be working throughout eternity? Yes. Amen. What kind of work is it going to be? Is it going to be in high-rise office jobs? No. No. It's going to be on the farm. It's going to be working. It's going to be trades. It's going to be using our bodies which were made to move. And so I'm glad Denzel shared his experience. I had an opportunity to be an hourly employee for seven years in the manufacturing plant. 
I got to work every single type of job in the entire organization, except for one. They didn't let me be a lift truck operator. <laughs> I'm often wondering. I think I figured out why. <laughs> but they also, uh, it also included being a plumber, welder. What amazing things I learned. But, you know, the neatest thing is not only get to learn new skills, but I learned to identify and connect with people of all walks of life. And I will ever, never lose that. I still have, those are some of my best friends today at the bakery. When I see them, I just smile. I love to see how they're doing. And that's, what is life about? What's eternity about? It's also about the friends we make and we want to be with forever. All right, we're going to Doug. And then I think that uh, Bridget had a question. And then we're going over to Phil. One thing that is, um, I think maybe we've hinted at it, but we haven't come right out and said it. Um, education in Adventism has changed. I think a couple of you talked about going to um, conference schools that had work programs, and the work programs have kind of died out. And I think mentioned how the education just between two of your children was vastly different. That is a product of a series of actions by the U.S. Department of Labor where they have fined our, our schools millions of dollars because they, they don't believe in the Madison model of education and they think that, you know, we're not teaching that we are working them. So that kind of came to a head, I, I feel, in a lawsuit against Laurel Brook Academy which they won. But, yeah, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> Laura Brook won that, that lawsuit. But it defined, it defined the way that we can do what we believe, which is different from what traditionally we have done, in that we are teaching a vocational program, not a work program, which means that there has to be intentional education and vocation. There has to be rotation. And the, the elements of doing that kind of a program um, undermine things that are, you know, like a cash cow. If you, have, if you have a factory where you're doing the same thing every day and that factory is making lots of money for your school, that doesn't fit that model. And... And so our struggle has been to find um, vocations that are profitable because we are, we are teaching, we, Heritage, we are teaching a variety of different vocations, but 90% of our income is tuition. And Steve said, you know, Steve made the point that... Um, his institution has one big cash cow, you know, the, the nursing home, two others that make, you know, a small profit. And, you know, so the, the question that, that we face is where do we go? What kind of a, what kind of a industry do we do? What can we do that we can have a model that's more like the Madison model? Because in, in Madison, students, when they graduated, they got a paycheck, you know, because they had been working 
and they worked their whole way through school, and the school owed the money for their work, but the school was profitable. And, and so, you know, with the challenges of the changes because of labor laws, um, all the schools, um, conference schools, have been losing their numbers of students because only certain people can afford to go there. And the same thing for, you know, our self-supporting academies. We've all been challenged by this, and so we're, we're still searching for a solution, um, you know, just that the nursing home used to provide. And, um, you know, the, the nursing homes are not as, yeah, they're, they're, they're highly regulated as well. It's more and more difficult to run these things. So this, this is our big challenge, and I, I wonder if you have any um, counsel for us. Okay, I'm going to take a minute on this question before I go with these other questions, okay? Because I think Doug is, is bringing us back to a very central question of why we're here. Can I, can I just bring one comment to you? Yeah. I worked in a factory because we built concrete mixers and that, and all, you know, when I got, went home from school, I, I, I watched a puddle is what I called it, and that was welding. I welded, you know, and so I'd weld a section, and then when I got done welding that section, I'd weld another one, weld another one, weld another one all day long. I will tell you that was a great education for me because my dad said if you do not get an education, you can get do that for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. So, so don't think that just having young people do something over and over and over again is not a great education. Because a lot of times people don't realize that the reason why you want to better yourself, do what, you know, get an education is so you can do something you love. Now, don't get me wrong, if you love watching puddles, that's wonderful. But I'm just saying that uh, repetitive things is an education in itself. Yeah, our, our problem is that the U.S. Department of Labor calls that work, not vocational education. So we, we heard from the lawyers yesterday that um, I said they did two things to us. They enlightened us and they frightened us. But it's true, we have this tension that exists. But in the context of knowing the world we live in, I'd like to address Doug's question for a minute before we move on. And that is, share with us, you know, you, you know the schools, you know the environment we live and, and work in. And I, I appreciate, Steve, I didn't know you had risk management experience, but... Years. Praise God, you're here with us. Um, like cloud on this end of the yeah. Okay, we got two clouds. Rusty going to be the sunshine in the middle? Okay. All right. But with your experiences that God has brought into your life at this point, what counsel would you give to the institutional leaders sitting here today? What would you say to them that would help them to go home with maybe an idea or some kind of uh, thinking that, yes, there are still opportunities, or just share your wisdom and your experience with this group today related to that question, which, as I understand Doug's question, let me repeat it, make sure I have it right. We live in a complicated world. We need industry on our campus. We don't have industry on our campus that really meets those criteria that's producing cash and gives those kind of experiences to our young people. What can you tell us? Well, I'm, I'm very, I'm perplexed. You know, it, it's after 
a couple of decades of, of you know working in this environment and watching it evolve away from the model that we're trying to accomplish. You know what what the world that that Madison was created in is very very different post industrial society, um, and and I and I believe the the devil's in some of this because uh, all of this stuff makes it harder for us to follow a model that we know is successful and we know prepares us, and 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 that's the devil at work because he he may not be able to get to us in certain ways. There's a back door. And maybe it's regulation, and maybe it's child labor laws, and it's the things. You know, I wonder in 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 the factory would would I don't know how old you were when you were going home and doing that, but they they probably well <laughs> no I wasn't saying you broke the laws then, but it probably you know that's a well, we did back then too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so on the risk management side, obviously, sure, sure. Um, you know, I think the I think service areas may be an area that we can, because manufacturing, production, there's, there's chemicals, there's, there's machinery, there's uh, the, the warehouse itself. I mean, when, when the warehouses we had, we had a, we, we had a, um, a good relationship with our local uh, you know, labor inspector, but they would come in and check, do we have enough windows now because we have kids in these factories? Like adults don't need windows, but you know kids need windows. You know, and and they they kept just cinching this down, cinching this down. And and I wonder if maybe service. Now, you know, you mentioned I'm only in my fourth year at College Hill Academy, um, and we have a, a we have a program. I don't know if you can call it exactly work study, but I don't know if you guys are familiar with PFE, Partnering for Attorney and the Assist program. Right. Um, I had never heard of it. it. It happened in between when I was out of education, and and I was just intrigued because we have a purpose for the work that the kids were doing. They were getting a financial aid kind of man, you know some sort of manifest of financial aid because of the higher pay that would come from this grant, and you know our school had been using that as a tool for those that had financial aid needs, and so it was very limited. We weren't we were a little nervous about before I got there, about the matching part. Could we really match the 20 or the, it's now 30% of, of the fundraising, things of that nature that made um, the school a little bit more uh, narrow focused on who could use it. Well, administration and I, I when I got to look at it, I remember we walked out after the first orientation and said, that's our industry. We just found our industry, at, at least for now. I don't know what options I may have over the years. I, you know, I haven't been there long enough to you know, change major culture, but I, I remember walking out thinking, okay, I don't have an infrastructure that I have to build, which is often one of the challenges. I mean, our, our schools don't have reserves. They don't have resources. How do you build the infrastructure? How, how do you wait long enough for the rate of return to start coming back around before you've, you've gone bankrupt or you've, you've started to affect the school operations in a way? You know, our, our industries, are, sadly, are often drains to our, to our you know, primary goal of, of, of education. And I don't know if there, I sh I've now separated the two, and I shouldn't. But I'm, I'm, I know that uh, I walked out of there thinking, you know, maybe more of the service sides of things because there aren't going to be child. We still have child labor laws, uh, you know, in, in regards to even the PFP assist, but it's much, much easier than a welding shop. It's much easier than a print shop. Uh, and I wonder if maybe some of those service areas are going to be the development, and that's where our society is developed. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't do as much manufacturing. We do a whole lot more of the, I guess, service side. Um, and, and I'm perplexed with you, so I don't know that I feel like an expert in that, but that's an idea. Okay, Rusty, any thoughts? We're talking about the question, what kind of 
recommendations can we make to school people sitting here today that would uh, that would help to send them in the right direction, knowing we need industry, knowing that we live in a complicated world. Yeah, so I'll just I'll just kind of add what what Steve just said is that um, the only time I got to work in the factory was when I was 18. Why? I was around lift truck. I was around equipment. You just cannot have anyone 17 or younger be around that equipment. Um, now, having said that, the nice thing about um, uh, being in communities that have industries nearby or in type of service industries is um, over the years I've seen how our ability to help help the school, Shenandoah Valley Academy, Gentry, Arkansas, and College Academy, Southern College, in those earlier days uh, we had something called the box factory. We needed labor, and labor was, is it more, and, and labor from students uh, was a perfect fit. For, for recycling our boxes. So we'd send a, a case of a product out, and that case came back. But it had to be sorted into the right, right cases, and we took those cases back. We, we, we were, in fact, so we've been recycling back from the uh, uh, 60s before the recycling was cool. And, and, um, and, and that worked many, many, for many years. But lo and behold, all of a sudden, the price of car, uh, cardboard cases kept dropping so low, it was cheaper for us to buy new recycled cases than it was to do, do this whole process, send them over again. Um, and so what I've seen since then is, uh, in, in, and I don't know when, when you're up to Shenandoah, but uh, it really hurt to tell these schools, hey, we're sorry, but uh, this is, we're, we've got to be good stewards of our employees, good stewards of our communities, so we're running the business to be successful for the long term. And so we had to we had to tell these schools, sorry, we we don't have a job for you anymore. So what's next? And you want to jump in there? Well, like. I was going to say, yeah, I was there, um, okay. and 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 we had a it was a tremendous um, uh, process, and I and I give kudos to McKee Corporation because uh, the transition was as smooth as could be expected, and and we've we've often from that side of of, of uh, the Columbia Union. You know, talked about how, as as sorry as we were to see the demise of the box factory, uh, the transition was done extremely professionally and very fairly and very equitably for helping us make the transition. Um, you know, you talked about the the uh, the need for student labor. Uh, it was interesting because one of the challenges in an industry is how do you deal with intermittent labor? Mm. So you have you have school breaks, you have summertime. All of a sudden, your labor force disappears. How does the or the partners maybe that you have the McKee partners or we we looked at Walker Muffler we looked at all kinds of packaging you know what are, what can we look at and and intermittent labor is a challenge so my my box factory manager would you know come Christmas time she's just dying because the trucks are coming in every day we would have just trucks lined up back there waiting for the kids to come back and I'd say we got all these faculty members doing nothing how about we come up you guys you're too slow you can't do it you know <laughs> adults are a waste of time the kids are like machines they're like robots in there and you know that goes back to as you look at your industry you know how do you incentivize the kids were incentivized immensely because it was piece rate and the faster they worked the more they worked we gave and but here's how we embraced that and again uh, Russ and I didn't know each other back then um, I, I'd been there six months we got a letter from McKee and said, hey, you know, some VPs were coming by to visit. We'd just like to come chat. And both my principal and I went, uh-oh, this, this, this doesn't sound good. Uh, and, you know, like I said, it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a great transition from that respect. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 was, it, was an it, was, it was hard for us to get the labor force 
you know, how do you deal with the, uh, again, the, the peace rate was great. How we incorporated our relationship, when we did awards chapel, where they do all kinds of different, you know, math club and, you know, all the different awards towards the end of the year. We had an award for the, the, the student that had earned the one, two, three earnings in the, in, in industry. Amen. So that, the, so that, and we, I mean, we had a kid, and he was, he was a, he was a village kid, um, that earned, I don't know, nine, nine, almost $10,000 in one year working at the box factory. Well, I, you know, I was in a rural community. These were not wealthy folks. And even though day school, you know, tuition didn't include the room and board, that, that was a family. The only reason he was there was because of industry. Um, and he was tremendous. And he, and like I said, he earned, I remember it was almost $10,000 in one year. Mm. That's, you know, from, from an industry partnership. And we made that an important part of the awards chapel so kids on the campus understood we're also recognizing that expertise and how important that is, not just the high score in the math club. Yeah. So recognition for hard work. Bingo. Recognition for hard work. How about that? And the other thing is peace work. It naturally motivates the student to work harder. And many times in life, the harder where you work, the more money you make, and it's not a bad thing. But now, Steve, what did you, what, what did you guys try to do with that building afterwards? Well, and and just very quickly on the piece rate, I know that that uh, our manager Wendy, she would, you know, all of a sudden she'd say, "Hey guys, we've got five trucks out there. If we can get those five trucks done, everybody gets a you know ten dollar bonus on there, you know, today." And you know, she was a master motivator. And and these kids were just, I mean, again, my daughter worked there. Uh, it was gone by the time my son came through, sadly. But my daughter worked there, and and it was very helpful to us uh, in, on, on wages. You know, we ended up, that's, I use that story, we had about 18 months of, of empty, and we tried the vocational thing. We tried to use that opportunity. Um, Walker Muffler was down about 18 miles away. Uh, we went down and worked and worked with them because all they, they were doing packaging. If we could just ship the stuff up to us, we could we could shrink wrap it, get it bail, I mean, get it on the pallets and move it on out. Just couldn't get over the hump. Um, we ended up at, with Rubbermaid Corporation. Rubbermaid Corporation was, um, and and I, after I left, it, it's it's gone. Every every has a life cycle, um, but we um, we took in all the returns for Rubbermaid Corporation from the east, kind of eastern half of the United States. So Costco would buy a thousand, a hundred thousand trash cans. And they would sell 90,000 of them. So they've got 10,000 they're trying to return to Rubbermaid. You have no idea what condition the boxes are in. Maybe the boxes have been crunched in the interior stuff. The, the shed has 50,000 pieces and three of them are missing because the box corner was out. All of that came to these warehouses. And truck after truck of Rubbermaid and Rubbermaid's distribution was in Winchester only about, you know, an hour north of us. And so they would come in. We would bring the boxes off. Um, open them up, make sure everything was good, put it back on the trucks to Winchester, and then they would go right back into their production cycle. Um, I believe they closed the West Coast and started to utilize us towards the end for everything. And so it wasn't as easy. The piece rate didn't work as well because you'd have a, a crate full of egg um, or ice cube trays. You've got 50 of them, and they're, they're fine. Then you have a shed that has, again, 1,000 pieces in there, and you're trying to wade through that and try to decide making a piece rate was much easier with the box factory but we worked we tried to do the same kind of routine provide kids an incentive for the harder they worked the faster they worked the more if they were on if they were on time if they stayed focused they weren't on their we didn't have phones quite that badly back then but they weren't on their phones texting all the time and it it, it was a model that worked and i think they had it uh, seven or eight years and and I, i've lost track i'm not sure what they're doing with those buildings right now okay and then in, in the arkansas plant uh again it really hurt to take that box factory uh, recycling component away. So then they, uh, um, 
what, what the school has done since then is they worked, worked with the company and recognized that the students in retail are not around lift trucks, not around equipment, and lo and behold, there's around, I don't know, uh, several half dozen or more uh, students who work in the, uh, the, the retail outlet right there next to the school. So I don't know if the school drives them over, if the kids drive, I don't know how they get there. But all of a sudden, we were thrilled to have uh, students in a, in a thrift store selling products. Because why? They have an opportunity not only to lose money, lose money, not, not only an opportunity to earn money for themselves, but they're also an opportunity to learn what real world's like. And what's real world like? It's being kind, eye contact, smiling to a customer, uh, being thoughtful. How I can how can I help you? That's all part of servant leadership, and uh, learning it in the real world and recognizing there's rewards for that, especially getting back to their paying for their education. Uh, we also opened opened up opportunities for uh, jobs around areas that don't have lift trucks, don't have heavy equipment, um, in doing uh, things of, uh, like uh, dumping dumping um, uh, what we call. Uh, crumbs and food products and stuff that hits the floor and you can't do anything with, so you, but you got to get it off the floor. And uh, we sell that to pig farmers. So have you ever wondered why in the southeast uh, pig, pork, you know, everybody's crazy about the taste of it? I think it's because they're eating so much sugar it comes out the floor. <laughs> I don't know. Could be. But so here's these students that are coming into the plant as, uh, as you know, 15 years old, I think, or 15 and a half. There's something in 16, 17 that uh, they get to work in a real company, a real plant, and as long as they follow this route and do these uh, tasks that need to be done, they're not hard, very basic, um, and they're not around. They all meet. And the cool thing is, is that the school does not have to worry about all those legal regulations. We're the ones that have to be worried about it. And so, wow, talk about an opportunity to provide employment for uh, the students and not have to be bogged down with a fear of all the laws. Let the business handle that from retail, from the manufacturing. So it could be there's opportunities that we have to look outside of our community. And still there's a great opportunity for witnessing. Denzel. Um, as a banker, what I like to look at is more diversification and not have an industry that is a one-legged one, one stool. I would like to see, you know, to me, I'd like to see a lot of different industries because you are going to have your peaks and your valleys. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You, you're going to have your peaks and your valleys uh, in different industries. You're going to have the pluses and minuses. But if you have several industries, then you don't. Um, then you can you can um, have one of them down, and the other ones are up, and you know it will go through the through the cycles because there's cycles in all businesses. So as a banker, I'd like to see more industries and have more opportunities uh, and have smaller, I'd rather see you have uh, six small industries than one big industry. I will, uh, I'll speak to that from an institutional standpoint, that it is a little scary when you're getting most of your um, student labor and income from that, from one industry. So as you're thinking about what to do, I very much concur with that. We're going to take a couple more questions now. We have Bridget, and then Phil, and then Wanda. I'm sorry, Wanda. Um, <laughs> okay. The industry thing. I, um, I'm co-founder of a school that started three years ago, and we have a very specific niche market. Uh, we work for those who have learning differences 
for those who are in homeschool and also those who are in ESL um, that come from other countries and they need to learn about God and they need to learn language. Um, and I grew up on Bass Academy, Bass Memorial Academy and Fletcher Academy and understanding that work was really important. And I worked all the way through Mount Pisgah Academy and I value hard work. Went through Southern, got my education degree, and there was a a period of time I moved to, to Loma Linda and started working for Job Corps, which is a vocational training program for at-risk youth. And I was so amazed by that program. It was like so Adventist, but not. Come to find out, and actually their academic side, they actually use some of the Adventist model um, of what we would send over to our missionaries for their curriculum. But they didn't have any actual Bible classes, but they taught kids how to, to have hard work and to value that. And then I started my own business as a, a, a tutoring center. And I did that for 12 or 14 years. The co-founder of Beacon Academy also has her own business, Tiffany Britt. And um, we both value hard work. We're trying to figure out how to put industry into this school. But in order to do that, we have to first change a mindset. Well, we have a couple things. One is we don't own the property that we're on yet. That, that makes it more difficult because we're limited by some of the things that we can do. But what we're doing first is just working on trying to change a mindset. That it's not a mindset of entitlement, of let's just do a walkathon and ask for money, but let's rake some leaves and earn some money. And um, it, it's challenging because we really don't want to just ask for money. Now, we've been very blessed because to date we have not asked for any money. We did a yard sale over the, the summer, Tiffany and I, and we had fun. We raised about $3,000 and we're out there really working hard. Um, but it was donations from people who just brought items from their house and we sold. And we made about $3,000. And then we had this bed sheet s sale that we did and we've brought in about $4,000. And that was the one thing that, that one of our teachers had recommended to sell, and it went really well. Now, obviously, that's not going to buy our building, <laughs> nor pay our rent during the summer. And there were, there were times I was really stressed. But I didn't say anything, and people would bring a check by and say, I just felt like you needed this. And those checks came and came, and now we have $140,000. And I am just so in awe. But I still want to have that industry, not to float the business. Not, I mean, we're still like you. We've got about, it's more than 90% of our is tuition, and we don't have worthy student funds. So, you know, we're talking to people right now who we're creating work for them over the summer so they can help pay their bill, you know, for the next year. But we're trying to work with them on, on a mindset. So what we're continuing to do is train the kids character building. Um, in fact, I'm using the social skills facilitator's guide from Job Corps to go over, you know, how to keep a job, how to have a job. I'm also creating a mindset for this, the students that this is what I expect you to do. You're not doing it yet, but as soon as I get the opportunity, you're going to do it. 
you know, as soon as you're 14, you can be gainfully employed. And I'm setting little things in there that this is important. This is important. So small business mindset is kind of where we're going for our industry, which is not one thing. Most recently, um, one of the things that, that we've done is um, one of our kids has designed a T-shirt. And he's, you know, we've kind of put him in charge of they're going to have to, they can use their funds for their class trip, but they have to sell it. Well, what do you want to price it at? You know, and who are you going to sell it to? And how are you going to, you know, so we'll help them run it, but they're going to have to come together and actually create this little business. Another thing that they're doing um, is uh, we've got them learning about other industries. We actually had McKee Food Transportation um, person come over, uh, Larry Kuhn and Perry Wilson. They've been talking to our kids about the freight industry and some other jobs that are available to them and the skills that they need. Um, I've been working and trying to find small business community within the College Dell area that will start to, like, eventually next year be able to talk to our students about what they need to be successful in their job and maybe find little entry positions for them. We're going to run a small business fair, hopefully next year. Most recently, we've found out that uh, Walgreens... Uh, gets rid of their stuff at the end of the season. And so I I got it in with one Walgreens, and I thought, well, there's a lot of Walgreens around here. So I cre I collected about five or $6,000 worth of product just from Christmas stuff. And thankfully, Tiffany has a warehouse, but it's in my living room right now. But as soon as Christmas comes, they're going to run a seasonal store or come Thanksgiving. And so then we'll be able to start selling some products, and that product will be able to go back into the student's either bill or whatever. But are there laws or are there reasons that I can't, are there regulations? Is there something that's going to stop me? Because I'm seeing all these opportunities, but I, what, what am I missing? I mean, isn't there a niche in small business and turning these little, these students into entrepreneurs? Praise God. Because I'm having a harder time going to some of the bigger businesses because they are a little bit nervous about the regulations and they don't want to hire my students yet, although I'm getting there. Well, I think actually the point you mentioned is a very good one, and that is a change of mindset. The smaller business idea, especially in your setting, I think could have a lot of value. So... Um, The mindset, the philosophy that went behind this, before we started the school, I read the Madison Project and I read the Book of Education. And it was those two things in the Madison School that I realized that they took what they had around them and then they just made it something that would work and benefit the local community, the very local community. And so that that's kind of the principles behind what we're needing to do. But I just am wondering... What's within our scope? Can we do that and use that? What should we expect as far as a percentage? I know we're going to till up a garden this year. And I had mentioned um, that, yeah, I kind of want to make money. Well, when I say that, I want the kids to be able to make about $20 a year so that they can pay for their Compassion International kids that we're sponsoring. I want them to actually feel what it's like to sell produce. I'm not thinking... The 350,000 or the 100,000, but then I'm like, hmm, maybe that'll pay for our building. So I did get those ideas, 
But, but originally I was thinking $20 per kid. You know, I want work values. I want them to be out there managing it. But what should I expect? What's reasonable for an industry on a two and a half acre, you know, 50, 55 kids is what we've got right now. But what should I actually expect that's not pie in the sky and actually feasible? Okay. Is uh, anyone have a response? What should she expect? This is a... <laughs> in a room in her father's business who had a plumbing business. And, um, of course, I don't advocate what, what business she went into. She went into the business of making jewelry and making it different than anybody else. And she built it into, by the, by the time she graduated, she had a store. And she moved that into three stores. Um, so. Bridget, what I, I guess, I guess, um, what I would say is that I think what you're doing is very important, um, on an individual basis. You know, I think that the idea that, um, I labor for something, I earn something, I use it for something, you know, and, and, and that it's not lining my own pockets is even, you know, more, uh, I guess, uh, uh, that service side is, is a good thing. You know, I'm not sure that those models are going to support institutions, obviously. doesn't mean they're unimportant. I think, in fact, they're really important as a, as a beginning point so that the individual student themselves learns what we're, we're talking about teaching them. You know, that may not necessarily, like I said, support uh, and lower tuition at this school, but uh, that's, you know, that's, that's how we train these uh, human beings uh, in, in, in Christ's character. And they become then successful themselves, whether that success turns around in, in a 360 degree thing. Um, but I, I think it's, it's important what you're doing. I, I think there's probably some regulations and some probably some sales tax. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's quite a lot of layers, but, um, I think individually it's a, it's a, a very productive thing to do. Okay. Phil, we're coming to you. Sorry for the delay. No, that's okay. Uh, if you don't mind um, revisiting something that Let's do was it. from a little bit before. Um, <clears throat> I uh, am originally a math teacher, and we were talking before about the vocational education and uh, the challenge sometimes in convincing parents of its value when they're wanting to stick to the books because they've got to get the ACT score, the SAT score, and so forth. Um, I gave up personally as a math teacher pretty early on in trying to convince my students of how they would, and I always use the analogy, you're not going to use this going to the grocery store. You know, because I was teaching things that were beyond basic arithmetic and basic multiplication. <clears throat> I was teaching, teaching concepts that you're not going to use there in just everyday mundane life. I said, you know, a lot of you aren't ever going to use this particular skill. Uh, so I stopped that, and um, I started changing the mindset. We're not teaching you necessarily how to do this very thing. We're teaching you how to think. We're teaching you how to problem solve. So that's in the classroom, but that's not really where I learned that skill. Uh, I also had the privilege of going to Little Creek Academy for one year. Yeah. In my ignorance, I left of my <laughs> own choosing, uh, but I've often 
thought, was that the right decision? And I think it probably was not, but the Lord has his way. But my experience there, I've contemplated um, the uh, the exposure I had to work, uh, the exposure I had to things outside of the classroom, the things that I remember working with um, uh, the Del Dimming. And uh, I worked with him, just me and him, uh, for a whole semester. Uh, and then from there, I went to cleaning the dormitory and working, learning how to clean toilets and showers and, and that type of thing. I worked in the garden. I still have a vivid memory of picking potatoes one day. We had to get them all out of the field because they'd get sunspots if we didn't. And it was late. Uh, they, it was horrible. It was abuse. But uh, I was out there picking these potatoes up and thinking, this is the most miserable I've ever been in my life. And I, I still have that memory. Um, but it was just the, those, those experiences were invaluable to me. Um, the other experience I had that I think has shaped me, I've probably more than anything else at Little Creek, was working with uh, Bill Foster. He, if some of you know him, he, was, uh, he taught us woodworking at that time. Uh, I had... An hour, it seemed like two hours a day. Maybe it was an hour and a half. I don't know. It was a long time. Four days a week, the freshmen worked with him building things out of wood. And it wasn't so much the skill he taught me at that time because it laid dormant for many years. And I've since picked back up the hobby of woodworking and, and found great joy in it. But it was the, uh, the idea of if you can think it, you know, you can make it. And if you run into a hurdle, we're going to work around it. You know, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to assist you and we're going to figure out a way to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. It was that, uh, the idea that as I come to things in my life that are challenging, I'm going to stop. I'm going to occasionally ask for help and I'm going to get through them. I'm going to problem solve. Uh, how many times have you ever worked on a car and it went just like it did on that YouTube video when the guy showed you or just like the instruction said, you know, some bolt won't come off or something messes up. So you break something and then you have to work, figure out how to fix it. You can either stop and give up or you can continue on. And as I think about the people that attended Little Creek Academy and other institutions like this, you know, they've gone on to do amazing things, both intellectually in the academic world and entrepreneurial and you name it, because they have an idea that, that uh, we can work, we can accomplish. Uh, the Lord will come alongside you or somebody else will come alongside you. We'll, we'll assist and we'll get through these troubles that, that life brings us. And that's the intangible benefit of a vocational education program. It's not that it's going to make you better at mathematics particularly or history. or I can't use everything from the classroom at the high school level and apply it to being in the garden or working in plumbing. You can't. You can apply some things, but not everything. But my goodness, the, the value you get in that just surpasses all the book knowledge that you could ever have, in my opinion. So delivering that message, sometimes it's harder without testimony. You need testimony from people that will say, this is what it did for me, that have already gone on to show that they're successful by the world's standards in life. And why do I, what do I attribute my success to? It's not to getting that high ACT score. It's to uh, having those experiences that that made me persevere and become successful. Thank you, Phil. I think that's uh, that was a, a good expression of just one year. Just one year in that environment. It's also impacted how I've been in the ministry. Yeah. So, 
it's impacted your whole life, just one year. And those experiences at that point in your life kind of changed who you became to a degree. Wanda? Um, I think I'm going to throw a little tension into the conversation. Go right um, ahead. Just speak up when you do it so we can all hear you. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to go back to, you know, we we're talking about different kinds of industries that we can do and many of them, you know, considering service. And I think these things are not unimportant, okay? I think they are. Um, questions that I ask myself, because I think you have to look at a broader picture as well. I ask myself, you know, how long can a country sustain their, themselves economically in a service-based economy? I don't think it's possible. And so then if we, uh, if we heavily focus on just teaching them service-oriented things, then when it collapses, what skills do they have to be a blessing to other people in the crisis? These are questions I, I ask myself when we start thinking about moving away. And I, and I think that's the blessing of the fact that we have training programs and we try to fight and spend money, lots of money in the courtroom to maintain that right to have a training program so we can teach them how to use things at younger ages. Um, yes, we need to be careful and everything like that, but if, if we don't, if, if we kind of shift away from that, where do they learn those skills to be able to be a blessing when the crisis comes? That's my question. So I want to just tag on what Wanda said a little bit and say this, that one of our objectives is to create missionaries, right? Missionaries, if any of you have ever been to the mission field, like I have, you know you have to have practical skills or you will fail on day one, two, or three. You might make it to day four, but probably not. The first couple of days, you're going to be in a situation where you do not have what you need to make what you need to succeed, okay? And if you don't have that mindset of, I can take what I have and find a way to make what I need, you're done, okay? That's the mission. That's the real mission field. And I think it was one of the beauties of the Madison program. They hardly ever had what they needed. They were always taking things they had, though, and making what they needed and creating. So that mindset of take what you have, create what you need, and solve the problem and move on is essential. And I think Wanda's right. You get some of that in the service industry, but it's still you, you need that practical hands-on, face a problem, figure it out, and go on with using something that's... Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Debbie. Um, well, I, I just have a question in that, or a, a, an observation and need some help in that, um, you know, I've got ads out for folks that I need help with. Bill Foster was on our campus for, um, until he was unable to still be, and we miss him terribly. Um, Dell is still there, but is 80 years old this year, along with his brother Lee. You know, when you put um, feelers out for staff members, and you've got young kids coming up, just graduating from college. Um, you know, we, all of us here, we heard before, and, and all of us also 
uh, understand this new generation of millennials do not have that same mindset. You know, they're, they've come up through a different rank, and it's harder and harder to find those that have an education of that sort um, to be able to continue to train in the way that they have been and the way we've appreciated the Dells and the Lees and the Bills and the Steves and the, you know, that we've experienced on our campuses are hard to come by. Um, and and we're struggling. You know, those are ones we want. And it's hard to find a young person, the teacher in the vocational area, to find a teacher that has any skill to be able to be in the vocational area at the same time is a struggle. Um, we're willing to train them and teach them, but then the desire is, I don't need that. I went to school to learn this. You know, so it's a paradigm shift as well for an entire generation of learners that we're struggling with. So it's just, you know. It is so true, and I see I have, uh, I, I want to comment on this, though. And I want to comment from the perspective of my experience in walking into a school in Korea. Wanda and I were there, and our job was to visit a couple of schools and to see what they were doing to see if they fit the ISE model and decide if we were going to affiliate with them. And we walked on this campus, and I talked to this pastor who had been convicted by God to go out and start a school. And we began to look around at his campus, and we toured the campus, and we looked at his buildings, and we, we, we saw this stuff. And he began to share a little bit of story. I don't know if Wanda remembers this, but what he said, he said, I didn't come here with any skills. He said, I was a pastor. I was a trained pastor. I didn't know how to do anything, he said. He said, but God put me here and I began to learn what to do. He said, I started taking things apart and putting things together. I became a mechanic. I started building things. I became a builder. And, and you walk around his campus and you see him now. And he said, well, yeah, we can do that. And he's putting solar hot water systems up on top of his boy's dorm because it was costing him $3,000 a month to heat the hot water for the boy's dorm. And you go up on top of his building now. And he said, yeah, we're going to put kind of a greenhouse structure over this so we can do better in the winter, you know, with heating our hot water. And I'm thinking, there's somebody who took what he had. He didn't have the skills, but he had determination and he had those characteristics that we're talking about that uh, are required to solve problems and move on. So we don't have people. It's true. It's so true. Yes, Denzel. One of the things that I think is so important today is to realize you can't be an expert at everything. So you got to make sure you get advice. You need to come to places like this. You need to you need to learn from other people. You know, when I when I went from my mixer business to banking, I did almost everything wrong in banking at first until I started going to these seminars and schooling and things like that to learn how. Because banking is the opposite of other businesses. Uh, so so my point is is that you can't be an expert at everything and just realize that again. You know your niche, know what you're good at. You know, a true manager knows they're what they're good at and what they're not good at. And make sure you get people around you that takes your weaknesses. But it's also very important to make sure that you, when you look at don't be afraid to, to look to expertise. Because in today's world, you have to have expertise in a lot of areas because you can't afford it. You can't afford to have expertise in every every department. You have to go out and get some expertise in different areas of what you do. You know, one industry that I want to mention that I think is really important is, and I know some of you do this, is the is the book selling business where you're selling books. 
I mean, you want to talk about education. How many, how many people sell? Everybody sells. You know, you, 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 sold, sell when, you sold yourself when you got married. <laughs> right? To your wife, right? You're right. I did. You know, she bought in. I got the best in, deal. She sold. And you knew how to close. Because you asked her, right? Close the deal. You closed the deal. But, but, you know, that's something that is so important that is that young people need to learn. And to me, uh, selling books and uh, selling the, that, that's something you can do. It's, it's, a, it's a great learning tool. And it can be used all over. And, and plus, it gets the gospel out. See, so, yeah, I mean, to me, it's a win, 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 win uh, industry. And I just want to mention that. But, but the other part that I think is important is make sure you don't be afraid to ask and get help. In different ways, you know, I know like in banking, there is so technical and it's so, uh, there's so many areas of expertise and I got to go hire experts to come in and help me with it because there is no way I can do it all myself. Okay, two good points you just made. What were they? Ask for help if you need it. You can't be an expert in everything. So, thank you. Okay, go ahead. Yes, um, it's interesting what... Um, Ms. Ms. Baker was saying, um, this morning we were talking about the agricultural and how, how valuable it is based on, the, on what we heard yesterday. But we confronted that issue. Who am I going to get to train my students like that? Not just going to the farm and doing there something, but be trained in, in the area. And we're running out of resources of people to train them. We don't have that many pastors that are willing to get trained and, 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 and get the support and do everything what they need. Another thing I think that we need to have, keep in mind is what Mrs. Sar was bringing and putting those two things in balance. Um, industry versus service. You know, what is our purpose of putting our children into the industry field? What is the purpose of us having an industry in our school? Is it to make a profit? Or is it to teach skills to our students? So we need to put those two both. things in balance. What is our main objective? If we could do both, that's a win-win. But sometimes it's hard to do both, you know? So we need to keep in mind, what is our priority? Is it to teach them skills or to make a profit? Okay. Let's get her a microphone, please. We've established that our primary goal is character development. But the bottom line is you don't teach character by teaching character. Right. They te you teach them character through experience. And I believe that's one of the most valuable things that we learn in the vocational training program or vocational education program. That's how you teach character. You don't teach character by teaching character. They learn it through experience. Okay, I, I want to kind of shift this now a little bit. And, and the next topic may be, uh, oh, was there another question? Okay, who was it? Was it you or me? Go. Well, I'm, I'm kind of solution sort of based person, I get perplexed if there's too many problems thrown at me and I don't know a solution for them. <laughs> and so I've been kind of pondering over the whole, um, what was said yesterday with the lawyer and then what's said today. And I'm kind of with him over here. Like, um, how do we really have a successful industry that doesn't completely go against the law and then get us in trouble? And um, So 
I'm just going to throw out a solution that I have no idea if it is a solution. I just would like some feedback. Um, what if we had something like a, uh, a program after, say, a certificate program or, or a program that was after grad that, that would target these areas that was still a required part of the program when the kids are older and you want them to still be able to get some of these skills, but they have to be 18 or whatever, but it was still part of the program somehow. I, I don't know This is um, if it's even practical. Anyway, that's what I'm, okay. I'm asking. So it's a, it's a very good question, and somebody here mentioned this to me, and I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Wanda. There's one school that's now, oh, it's in a school in uh, Korea. They have gone with a five-year program, right? Wanda, am I on target? Oh, okay. Well, they've done something. Uh, but their emphasis is on training missionaries. And, and they're putting out a lot of, they're putting them out into internships on a regular basis. They're, they're traveling into the mission field, into an internship situation as part of their schooling on a very regular basis. So it, I don't know if that's total, but I think it answers the question to a degree that yes, I think there's some possibilities there. And, um, Post-high school program is certainly a vocational post-high school program. Who here knows of a Seventh-day Adventist vocational school post-high school? But I, I know, uh, I'm saying we, we have that lay evangelist, but I'm talking about the practical welding, da-da-da-da. Uh, is there such a thing? We, I, I don't know of any, and that's we pretty what, much. I, we've actually talked about it in staff meeting. Yeah, okay. We didn't know of one that would teach like a welding certificate yeah. or a building. Yeah. Okay, we've got a comment from the back, and then we'll come to Bridget. There is a post, uh, it's pre-graduation and post-graduation program over at Loma Linda. Just opened up this past year. It's uh, called the Sam Manuel Gateway College. And it basically, it'll bring in anybody who doesn't have a high school diploma, helps them achieve that, and it, it creates those health care um, foundational program certificates that can lead all the way up to a doctoral program. Okay. All right. Bridget? I was thinking a program in California. Also, Gina Eidelbach started a school, but his is a, a junior college. And so it is a, a postgraduate program, but he does some certificated programs. Um, now, in California, there are ROTC programs, regional occupational career programs, but they're not connected to the Adventist. And I think that they would be phenomenal to model something like that um, because there would be people that was, would maybe look at that. And I know Gene has gone through a lot of failures before... I mean, he's he's learned a lot, and he's got a lot to share. And like anybody who's starting something can maybe point somebody in the right direction if you do want to do more post-grad certificated stuff. Okay, Charles, another question over here. Oh, sorry, Shimon. Let us not pass you up. As I'm sitting here listening to all the discussion and questions and stuff, you know, I just want to encourage all of us. Jesus says that in the last day, he's going to do new things for us. And the whole goal is 
bringing souls into Christ, right? Whether we're in home, school, or in our churches, which leads to the community. And so I just want us to be encouraged because God has a plan for all of us. Whatever it is, we just need to be open to his suggestions. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I've been pondering, and you kind of asked the similar question, you know, if we can't do both support the school and train for character development, which one should we focus more on? And I went back to education, you know, chapter, what is it, 24 on manual training, and was just skimming through it. And I know there's more out there than just that chapter, but um, there's more focus on character development and specifically training them to have something that they can fall back on or use as a self-support to support themselves as they go out and do missionary work. It doesn't say really much of anything about supporting the school while they're in academy or, or college. So I'm just throwing out there, you know, what's the balance? Is our goal to support our academy or is our goal to do what God is asking us to do and then see what he'll do with that? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take off from that here uh, because time is coming down on us. But... Um, and here's the takeoff I'm going to do. I'm going to go into failure mode, okay? This has been brought to the table in a very nice way. Um, what's this balance when we're training students? So I'm going to just share my personal experience. I'm going to open the floor a little bit um, to see at what point we draw the line and say, we've done what we could, this didn't work. Harvard Hills Academy bought we purchased a business that was in operation. Uh, an individual entrepreneur had said, I think we should supply good, healthy food to our community, and we should grow alfalfa sprouts and sell them to the community. So he started a business in his home, in his basement, growing alfalfa sprouts, and he grew it to the point where he was making a route and selling alfalfa sprouts, and he said, I, I'm moving somewhere else. I want to get rid of my business. Would you guys like my business? He said, oh, yeah. This fits perfect with what we're doing. It's agriculture in nature. It's relatively simple. And we could just pick that up and sell sprouts. And we said, fine, let's pick this up. Let's sell sprouts. So we set up a little building we had. We changed the purpose of that building. We set up sprout growing rooms and a little equipment there. And we began to grow sprouts. And we packaged them in gallon jugs. And we could use even elementary students to do part of this process because it was so simple. You're just picking up sprouts and you're putting them in a jug and they could put a hat on and they could put an apron on and gloves on and choo, 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 and it was very simple and it was very agricultural and it just seemed such a good fit. And we were selling sprouts for a while and we began to expand our route and we say, praise God, we're going to Memphis, we're going to Birmingham, we're selling sprouts, everybody's getting healthy and we're a part of that. Well, it worked well for a number of years uh, and we were... Surviving, We weren't making a lot of money, but we were surviving, and it was definitely good training. In, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but there began to be some, I don't know if you remember this, some scare, if, if, because there was salmonella that was being on the seed, that was being sprouted, that was being delivered to the restaurants, and people were not willing to buy sprouts anymore, even the restaurants, because there was there was this salmonella scare. And even today when you go to restaurants, they generally don't have a lot of sprouts on the bar because of that scare and what happened. So suddenly our sales began to fall. We were still capable of making, 
but the sales were falling, and we were paying a full-time delivery person to go from Harbor Hills Academy to Memphis and Nashville and Birmingham, and anybody who knows what it takes to put somebody on the road in a truck, you can identify with me. We were in a crisis. We were paying people to eat sprouts. As much as I love people being healthy, as much as I love the training that was happening as a result of students putting sprouts in jugs, as much as it was in harmony with our mission, in line with everything we were doing, people stopped buying sprouts. The guy, the driver called me one day and he said, truck broke down. I said, praise God. I said, I'm going to send... I'm going to send the guys down with the trailer, uh, and we'll pick the truck up and bring it home. And uh, I'll talk to you when you get here. We got the truck home, put it behind the shop, said a blessing over it. And I called him in the office, and I said, listen, I'm sorry, but we're out of business. We've been paying people to eat sprouts for a number of months now, almost a year now. We can't seem to bring it back. We can't seem to penetrate this thing in the way it needs to be penetrated. And now Harvard Hills Academy is investing in feeding our community and paying them to eat sprouts. And we can't do that anymore. So as much as we love the business, and as much as we love the training and the character development, we had to make a business decision that said, it's over. We can't pay people to eat sprouts anymore. It didn't end the training opportunities on our campus, praise God. There's still plenty of character development going on everywhere. But that's an example of failure. I say failure, I don't know. However you define it, we were not successful in that industry. As, as much as we wanted to be, as hard as we tried, as much work and sweat and blood and tears as we put into that thing, we just weren't successful. So my question to you today is when and how do you fail gracefully at what point do you draw the line where you've paid enough people to eat sprouts that you have to say, we can't do that anymore? Oh, uh, need a microphone over here. I, I wouldn't define that as a business failure, right? That, that wasn't that you were incapable of, of operating the business or didn't know how to do things. The economic situation changed, right? So the product no longer had the value that it had for whatever reason and the, you couldn't adjust your costs to match the change in, in demand. And so that's a business decision. And I think that we, we do have to be prudent that way because Christ did say that we need to count the costs, right? So when we're doing things, you can't completely divorce the character building from the profit making, right? The profit making does not have to be excessive, but at the end of the day, if you, put the character building in place, and yet the school stops functioning because it ran out of money, you've lost. At the same time, we have to have some faith that if we're doing what God wants, he's going to make ways available. It's just not going to be necessarily as clear-cut. So I think that the answer requires a lot of prayer, and it requires a lot of attention. But we can't be cavalier about the fact that as long as we're doing the work of God, there's zero opposition. I don't have to worry about anything. Nor can we allow the bottom line to completely dominate the thought process in how we offer services. Okay. Denzel, help us here. There's a business book out that's very, uh, a famous business book. It's called Who Moved the Cheese? 
I think you've all, a lot of you have read that book, um, The Cheese Milk. And so the, the question is, uh, when do you recognize that? That's a good question. I can tell you most people don't recognize it soon enough. Uh, that's pretty common. That's human nature because you always want to try to keep going back to oh, the yeah. same spot. But things change. And that's why I mentioned earlier it's important. The advantage was is he had a business, but he had other businesses beside that, so it didn't kill there. Okay. So the key there, again, going back to the what I talked about earlier, it's important to have a lot of different industries so that if when, when the cheese does move in this particular instance, it doesn't hurt your... It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Every time it's going to hurt. But it doesn't kill you. That's the difference. Rusty. So I like, I like, to, I like to say things that are, um, even cause you to chuckle or make you uh, causes us to think. So, so I'm going to lay out this next, uh, next several words uh, in a way that creates usually a response. The desire to accumulate wealth is an original affection of our nature. True or false? Implanted there by our Heavenly Father. True or false? Yeah. For noble ends. Yeah. You guys already knew that. Oh, I usually don't get that kind of response. You guys are all, all over this. A lot of times when I'm talking to different folks, um, they first hear this, this phrase, the desire to accumulate, to accumulate wealth is an original affection of our nature. Well, yeah, but they think it's always something, always something. Uh, implanted by the Heavenly Father, there, I usually get this incredible rejection. Well, no way. But then those last three words, for noble ends. Our passion for noble ends is gargantuan here. And to make a profit should be everyone's huge interest. So, Steve, I see you just about to say something, but before you do, I want to ask you, you've managed industry. You have this experience. And, and I think sometimes one of our downfalls, honestly, is that we have been poor managers. I don't think that's in harmony with God's plan, honestly. I think he expects us to be good managers. But from your perspective, how do you, how do you see this? Well, I like what's been said here at the other end, Dendel. First of all, do we know what our niche is? Do we know what we're good at? And so often, the industry that we partner with, especially if we own it, you know, it's different when you're, when you're partnering with another uh, organization and perhaps you know you're sending your labor force there and you know as, as Rusty said you know there that reduces some of the issues that we you, know, you have to deal with but are, are you good at what you're going to jump into and if you're not you better hire experts that are going to help you understand what you've just joined and perhaps see those tea leaves as they're starting to change as she starts she starts to move you know help you in and out of that because i think so often we have the best of intentions but we don't know what we're doing and and so then we you know we get ourselves you know down this this dead end and yeah it's hard to turn around because if i just do a little more if we just there's you know it, it's it's difficult um to her question you know what's the priority and i, I Rusty, that's a great quote um certainly you know when you look at from the education side and that's you know i spent all my time on the inside of this how do you fund education how do we, because the whole purpose of funding education for me, is how do I minimize the cost to the parents? How do I get that cost down? Because the lower I can get that, not that, not that the cost of education changed, 
Uh, it's ironic to me. I keep track of what it costs in the public school system in our area. And I'm, I'm always intrigued when they put out the statistics to say, this is what we spend per pupil now in Hamilton County that I'm getting used to. It's, it's, it's very much like what we spend per pupil. And they just have a different funding model than we do. <laughs> Conference schools have a different funding model than self-supporting schools. In, in the, in, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is get more students into our schools. Yeah. And finances isn't always, it's sometimes a crutch. It's sometimes the club that is used, and there's other reasons. But finances is definitely an issue that we deal with. So whether it's donors, you know, you said 90%. I'm, I'm at about 75% of ours comes from tuition and fees. And as a conference school, I have other subsidies and things that also in kind of church constituents that help me with the other 25. I don't have an industry, so it's not participating. It's also not draining. So industry, first of all, needs to not be the drain, you know, because that's what happens. It's so easy for us to lose ground, and then all of a sudden our tuition is funding alfalfa sprouts. And those parents are having to pay for something that's going on the other way. But I always looked at it to say, even if, if we're breaking even, you know, if, if, if all we're doing is breaking even, I've provided $60,000 a year in free student labor. I, I've, I've put, it's, it's like a worthy student fund, as long as I'm breaking even. Now, it's, it's awfully hard to make that argument to the board. We lost 60000 but 60000 of it was student labor, which came to it. That's, that's not an easy argument. Um, I haven't had to make that too many times, but it's, it's painful when you have to make that argument. I, I think the answer is, yes, we have to be profitable. We have to maintain. You know, they don't call us nonprofits. We're not for profit. It's, it's, a, it's a subtle difference because nonprofits go out of, go out of business. All right. Not-for-profit means that our focus isn't profit. We still have to be profitable, and we still have to put reserves on the bottom line. And so I think, you know, the goal is to, to stay in business as a school and, and that. But I think you can look at it, even if, it, even if the, the industry isn't reducing tuition, perhaps, making so many dollars that it's helping the bottom line on that side. What are we providing? Yeah, we're providing the intrinsic value of, of the work and all the things we're talking about. That's, that's critical. But, but I know we would, we would go and report how many dollars our student labor was, was, was generated by this that comes directly to the school and helps affordability. And to us, that was a profit even if I wasn't above zero. I don't know if that helps. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. Well, just in, in hearing the conversation, you know, I, it resonates. So, I mean, I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. Um, you know, it's difficult in a supporting work to be an educator trying to be a business person and to run a business at an educational institution because they're, they can be many times diametrically opposed, as we've talked about here. And, and I think that what Denzel mentioned in some of the conversation here is it really hit home to me that um, I need to find someone who knows how to do what I'm needing to do, not to assume and I don't know about any other administrator here, but we have a tendency to wear many hats of whatever needs to be worn and think that we can try and do it and fail every time or struggle every time using resources that are counterproductive or are taking from the educational side, right? Sure. The, the school supporting the farm rather than the farm supporting the school. And, you know, I've made all those mistakes and struggled through all that battle. And, you know, shame on me for e even beginning to think that I could do what maybe somebody else should be doing. 
And it doesn't mean I can't learn. It doesn't mean I can't help. But maybe it's not my place to run it. And, and maybe that's the mistake that I've tried to make over the course of the years and trying to make it work that I've... Well, and, and maybe the Lord's not asking me to learn that. Maybe the Lord's not asking me to do that. And instead, he's expecting me to step out in faith for somebody else to because I feel like I can't afford it, right? The institution can't swing it. We right. can't afford to hire somebody to do that. Or, you know, so we don't. And we think that we can do it ourselves and struggle too much. So, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling that conviction a bit as we're, as we're talking because it's just a constant struggle and you know I'm not the only institution that's battled with I mean we've commiserated together through it you know and and how do we make that work well it resonates that you said you know how do you how do you run a school as a business is a business a school Um, and I think it is unique it it is different you know if if if, you you have a parent that comes in and they haven't been paying their bill and at some point obviously the other parents aren't funding that parent you know it's all it all comes back down and, and you're, you're faced with this reality, do we let this family go? Do, do the kids move on to another place? Do they go to a public school? Do they go? And the ministry side, the mission of what we do in education is conflicted with what would be a normal business practice. If a, if a, if a supplier isn't, you know, is, or if you're not paying your suppliers, pretty soon you don't have any materials. Um, you know, our supply is, is, is these, these, these families that are struggling. And so I think, um, we are challenged because taking a traditional business model into a ministry, which is all we are, um, puts us at great conflict. Um, we have to stay in business. He said it. If we go out of business, we've lost our bully pulpit. We've lost our opportunity. And yet, um, you know, we have to find those. And, and, and it goes back to then, and I appreciate what you said about um, uh, earlier, from, from being inside the school side for so many years, so much is often put on the school. Why aren't you accomplishing this? Why aren't the kids coming out of here uh, ready for ministry? Why aren't they? Why are they so rotten to the core? Why? Why is this one? You know, again, it it it, and maybe that's a chip on our shoulders from the education side. It's we don't operate in a vacuum. We're a microcosm of society. We have again. I've, I I may have sound like I beat up on parents today. We we have pastors and churches and parents and grandparents. Everybody is influencing this thing, and so. As we, as we look at what we're trying to accomplish in industry, in trying to make sure that that vocational side comes out, we need the entire system to be supporting that, not just the schools. We need it to come from the pulpit. We need it to come from a, a, a revival of, of reading the, the, the councils that we already have. Um, because so often we're, we're, we feel like we're, we're, we're facing this tidal wave of stuff coming at us that is not productive for where we're trying to go. And, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's hard to take your kids. Bridget, you know, you do that. You have them for six, seven hours a day and you do everything you can to mold whatever we're supposed to be, you know, in our, in our, in our educational ministry. Then they go home. And if they go home to something that completely turns that around, you're, boy, you're, you're, you're facing demons that are very difficult the next morning at eight o'clock. So yeah, it, we're you know this this is wonderful and, and and from from an educational perspective, I think you know we we pull the same oars, but we have to get this wider. We have to we have to involve the the system because it's it can break it down faster than we can build it up. Okay, I'm going to take uh, Phil, then I'm going to summarize, 
And then I'm going to ask these three men, gentlemen here to give us their words of wisdom in a couple of sentences as their closing thoughts. Okay, so they can have some time to think about that. Uh, but we're going to hear from Phil, and then I'm going to summarize. So I've given you fair notice uh, of the question, okay? I was just going to uh, add on to Steve's testimony from, from his school. We have a pretty current um, industry or business that we're having to close. Uh, it's closing, well, the projected date is April 30, uh, and that is the uh, Fletcher Valley Market and Bakery. It's been there a long time. Uh, it, I guess it started as a commissary 70-some years ago, and anyway, it's always been. It's kind of like a miniature village market. Um, but reality is struck. It is struck for many years now. And uh, they've tried everything conceivable to make it a success. Um, just really made a big push in advertising and really getting the word out there. It's been remodeled some years ago. It's a beautiful little store. Uh, but the reality is the cheese moved. The um, market is not there. Uh, the, the traffic is not there. The dedication to that small store mentality is not there. And so we've realized that this is becoming a drain on the corporation uh, to the tune of close to $100,000 a year um, in the negative. And so, yeah, we've got 10 or 11 students working there, but we're paying their wages plus losing $100,000. And is that sustainable, um, that's an awful big investment just to give people a place to buy their veggie food. Uh, but with that comes an, a cost. Uh, you're, you're not going to lose that $100,000, but you have the negative stigma in the community that you've shut a business down. And it gives the idea that your school is somehow in a downward trend instead of an upward. Um, so <clears throat> that has to be overcome, and we don't have a long time to overcome that because with the closing down of one business, there needs to be a thought, a vision, something to expand in another area to take off. And, and I appreciate, I don't know if it'll work, but I appreciate sitting through um, uh, Dysinger's seminar because that, that's an asset that we have that is not currently being tapped into. It's been tried in the past too, and that's what's going to make it difficult, is failures in the past sometimes prevent us from from going in the future, even though that's we're clearly told that's God's ideal for his school. So we're going to have to, to work on overcoming that and doing it in the right way. But there's another cost besides just shutting the business down is the perception uh, that you have to figure out how to redirect and, and turn into positive energy instead of just negative. Thank you. Okay. So I'm just going to give you a brief summary of the working points that I am taking away today. So maybe you can take a few away and then we'll take these last comments uh, around here. So um, work and industry is a part of God's plan for education. I'm taking away that one of our major focuses of the program is to develop the characteristics that we want our young people to have as they move to the future. Honesty, integrity, etc., etc. I'm taking away that one of our jobs is that we want to give them in the process a passion. Not just a oh-ho-hum, but actually a passion for the work they do. And yes, there has to be some production 
or we're in trouble. Uh, service industries are a possibility. They may not fill all the requirements, but they're certainly a possibility for something for us to investigate that may have value. Uh, I like this idea of piece rate work that I heard coming in. I don't think there are very many of us that do that, where they were packaging boxes on a piece rate basis, right? I mean, so much a box, you're done. You do so many boxes, you get so much money. Okay, it's a certainly incentive. I picked up the idea that we as institutions need to work diligently to develop partnerships. It's important to have partners. And actually, um, yeah, I'm going to think more about this because having someone else that's responsible for the dirty details is a real blessing. Okay? When I say the dirty details, Rusty, I'm talking about the workers' comp and the da 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 right? If there's a, an industry that works and can manage that aspect of it, that in a partnership arrangement could be a huge blessing. Uh, we have a great respect and recognition um, personally for hard work. But we may not always share that with our students in a productive way. And, and, and affirming their hard work is important, I think. And I picked that up here. Um, I picked up here that we have sometimes we need to change our mindset about the way things are. And the, the idea of how we balance, there's still this huge tension between the calculus and the uh, milk and the cow, right? It's just there. We recognize that. It's going to require training our parents. It's going to require training our students. It's going to require training our teachers. Because many have come through the system where, hey, if you get the calculus, you're going straight to heaven. If you can milk the cow, oh, well, we'll pray for you. You know, I mean, reality. But we need to sometimes change our expectations. Um, I like Bridget's comment, small student-run things. Hey, let's do, let's have, Bridget, show us how to create young entrepreneurs. Praise God, our church needs them, our, our community needs them, we need them. Um, appreciate the testimonies that were shared here today about how this kind of thing impacted your life personally. That's huge for me. Um, the LE work, yeah, you know, that actually is is a very, it's kind of a service industry, but it's a very ideal service industry. You can start selling books August 15. You can stop on November 15. You can pick up on January 1. You can do a lot of things with selling books that you can't do with any other industry. Um, I picked up that we should be uh, wise enough and humble enough to ask for help and get an expert involved when you need one because, praise God, they know more than we do. That's why I'm going to Romania to get an expert to show me how to run my greenhouses. Because when I went there, I said, there are people that know how to run greenhouses. I don't, I've never seen plants grow and produce like they produced them. Praise God, that's where I'm going. I, if Lord is willing, I'm going to bring a Romanian gardener to my campus, and he's going to show me how to run greenhouses, and I'm going to train some people so that I can have greenhouses actually producing like theirs do. Anyway. So, ask for an expert, and thank you to our experts today. What are your final comments? Steve? Yeah, I, I think we need, to, we need to decide that we're going to stand for something. Uh, you know, I think deep down, it goes to the niche business that you know what you are about, or that, that the, your culture is this, and, and 
and not if you don't like it, go somewhere else, but this is what we stand for. This is what's important to us. Um, I think if we went around the room, that line would be in different places for each of us, different places on different subjects. There are, there are certain things that we bog down in schools, uh, in our board meetings, in our, in our, over cultural differences, over, um, you know, rules and regulations change, philosophies don't. Um, the cheese is moved. You know, as, 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 as impressive as the Madison, um, as impressive as Madison College was, it doesn't operate exactly the same way. The philosophy is the same, but how we do it, that cheese has moved over 100 years, and we can't do education, we can't do industry the way we did it even 20 years ago because of things. By standing up and recognizing that the 21st century has dealt us these cards, this is what we stand for, and this is how we're going to make it happen. Um, use our expertise. Be humble enough to, to get people involved that can help us be successful. We wanted to win kids for Christ. We want them in our school system, uh, whatever that system is, homeschool to, to conference schools. When we stand for something, you know, people gravitate to, they gravitate to passion. When we're passionate about what we are and we know what we are and we stand for it, families will find ways, donors will support. We have enough resources, we have enough kids to fill our schools to be successful. We need to be, I guess, I think, I, I just say stand for it. Stand for something, be very clear, and I believe then the resources will come to finish this work. Rusty? <clears throat> So in, in all we do, do all to the glory of God. So we have students who are excelling, excelling incredibly well in some of their classes. Those same students put so much work to make great grades. Their parents want to get this high score in their ATC. And yet somehow we've got to connect the dots that when that student's out there pulling weeds, they should excel in how they're pulling those weeds, how many they can get, how well the roots to the bottom of that weed are picked up. And that, that philosophy should never change. And that's for all students. And somehow we got to connect those dots because that is where you get gain your hardest work ethic. It's everything you do. Second thing is, is what, what, what another component of, of what we are about is uh, that relates to a career in the real world is something that could be sold as a strength um, uh, for potential uh, businesses to employ students. And that is your passion for truth, for a passion for trust, trustworthiness. If I had someone come to my business and said, by the way, uh, one, of our, one of our highest uh, character traits we are uh, on our top of our list, top 10, top five, whatever, is trust. We're going to offer you the top five students who have, who have learned this, who have got this down. Um, and I, we assure you that you can trust them. Wow, what, what employer doesn't want to have that as a foundational issue? And somehow, if you're able to capitalize on that, what a beautiful thing that you have. Um, and so I want to branch off a slightly a little bit on that. Um, on business philosophies, there's a phrase that, that is often shared in family business. Family, don't hire family if you can't fire family. So when you have these classes and you see a student that is not being honest or, or struggling with uh, uh, cheating or whatever it is, 
that is a, an adjustment of pain. If the pain is high enough, you can correct a behavior and change a life for a lifetime. And that comes back at foundational trust. And then this is the second thing. And then the, uh, the third item, well, my, last, uh, my last thing to share, is I'm not aware of any successful long-term business that doesn't have at least one or more leaders that this is their passion for their life. They measure every bit of their own self-worth, sure on the other foundational things as Christians, but as a, as a, as a, pro, as providing productive, a productive life, everything surrounds that operation. And, and, uh, and, and there's no, I don't know if any business that doesn't have somebody like that. So that's my point. Hansel? You're asking for expert advice. I, the one I think of the most is what my uncle told me one time. He told me he could, he knew how to raise everyone's children except his own. <laughs> you know, when it comes down to it, there's only two ways you make you can make money. You make more than you spend, or you spend less than you make. Okay. Try not to get things so complicated. Try to bring things down to the basics in what you do. I'm in banking. I lend people money and they pay me back. Now I can go through all the details and all the stuff that goes on. You bake uh, cakes. You know, it's simple ingredients, but there's a lot to it. But the basics is he's a baker. So just make sure that when you're looking at your business and you're looking at what you're doing, go down to the basics of what you do and then grow from there. Because you can get caught up. You can get so overwhelmed with all the things going on, you start cavitating. And that's a, that's a problem. I know. I do it all the time. And i got to remember to go back to basics. My dad, my dad used to always tell me that. Let's go back to basics. Let's go back to what's really the foundation and then build and so, you know, as you're, as you're struggling with your businesses, and I know it's a struggle with all the things that you're trying to do with all your hats, just remember, though, that, you know, the foundation of what you do is you're changing people's lives. You know, I'm an ASI organization. I'm passionate about ASI because I think that everyone has an opportunity to witness. You're creating young people that's going to have an opportunity to witness no matter where they go. You know, I'm a banker, but my real job is to tell others about Jesus, right? So just just remember what the real passion, your basics of what you're doing, and the and, and celebrate your successes. Don't always look at the failures, so celebrate your successes too. And remember that. Because if you do that, it makes you go on further. Amen. And what the other thing I want to tell you is I really appreciate the work you all do here. Your schools and institutions. It's a very valuable. You know, I hear it from the other side because I'm, you know, dealing with the, uh, you know, the missions Inc. side and all the other side, other parts. But I, but I listen to lay people and they talk about their children that's gone through your schools and and the the, the education that they've gotten and and it's a real value and it's a real need and uh, and I just want you to know we appreciate all the work you all do to make your part of the gospel to the world. Because you're doing it for kids for eternity. Thank you. Amen. I'm going to borrow your microphone. I'm going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to ask.
Marius, if he would pray for us. Marius is the education director from the Inter-European Division. Thank you for being here. Pray for us as we close out today. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and may God help us. Thank you, dear Father, for the blessed opportunity to be here sharing the same passion with you and trying to pass on to the others the challenge to train the people and to show them the way to heaven. Thank you for the time we learn from each other as we are looking forward in training better and accomplishing your plan according to your will and as we have already discovered to us. We humbly lift up our schools, even if we are home schools or home-like schools or church schools. We lift up the kids in need as they are looking for opportunity to be better trained. We lift up our teachers and our officers, the administration, the staff of our schools. Give us the blessing of receiving the Holy Spirit's power to use it for a good continuation of our work until we meet you in person, ready to show you the fruits of your Holy Spirit work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.